Polar exploration is at once the cleanest and most isolated way of having a bad time which has been devised. It is the only form of adventure in which you put on your clothes at Michaelmas and keep them on until Christmas, and, save for a layer of the natural grease of the body, find them as clean as though they were new. It is more lonely than London, more secluded than any monastery, and the post comes but once a year. Take it all in all, I do not believe anybody on Earth has a worse time than an Emperor Penguin. All right. Bill? God, I don't know how to begin a podcast. How do you begin a podcast, Bill? Do we just talk to each other like normal? I think you're supposed to either... I think I should be marimbas, usually, and sort of a, a musical segue, which then results in a, an in-joke. I don't know how you start your first podcast. Yeah, well, we, we don't have the production value for that. Welcome to the Big Readcast. Thanks for joining us. This is our inaugural and or just absolute beginning of everything issue. Uh, I'm Joel. I'm here with... I'm Bill Coverly. <laughs> um, we'll tell you about ourselves in a second, but uh, we just wanted to kind of introduce the, the whole thing we're doing here. So um, first off, this is our first podcast, not only of this series, but for me of all time, Bill's done some things in the past he might tell you about. He might not tell you about. He could be mysterious. Um, our hope for this podcast is that it's sort of a freewheeling discussion about books that are bigger than the average book. So we've, we've decided to come together about four times a year, Bill and I, and read a book that's minimum 500 pages. We might play around with that. We might read a series or a trilogy, but something that exceeds 500 pages Unless maybe it's a poem. If it's uh, something like Derek Walcott's Amoros, we might you know, give ourselves a break because poetry, I think, is denser. But the idea of this podcast is just to read big books and to talk about it and probably to talk about anything else that comes to mind as we're reading. Um, again, I'm, so let's, let's talk about who we are, maybe. I, I'm Joel. Um, I'm currently doing a, I'm finishing up my Master's of Fine Arts at Syracuse University um, in creative writing. I'm originally from Denver. I'm married. I'm a new father. Um, you know, I don't know what else to add to that. Bill? <laughs> well, you might mention that you're a, you're a scholar, a particular poet, or something like that. I don't know. You're a call. Whatever you want to say. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I mean, so I, I, have, a, I have a background in, like, literature, but it's not... It's sort of... I sort of forced it. I, I was a Victorian studies person, so I'm, you know, I know a lot about, like, for example, Gerard Manley Hopkins, um... But that's, that's sort of a past life. At this point, I'm just mostly doing creative writing, and then I'm a dilettante and everything else. So, yeah, man. Yeah, so I'm, I'm Bill Coberly. I, uh, I'm currently a, a lawyer. I'm a first-year associate, so I'm, I'm a baby lawyer. Uh, up here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, I work in uh, corporate civil defense litigation. So I you know, defend evil corporations and make sure they get off scot-free from the horrible things they do. I, that's not what I do, but I, I, I do do civil defense. Um, <laughs> uh, my background before this, I, I uh, was a philosophy major in college, which the only thing you do then is either 
um, get a PhD in philosophy, go to law school, or uh, you know, sort of die under a bridge somewhere. Uh, and after mm-hmm. flirting with the concept mm-hmm. of dying under a bridge, I decided to go to law school. Um, tough choice, though. It was a tough choice. It was tough. You know, <laughs> there's some pretty nice bridges uh, around here. Yeah. Uh, for a while, I was active on the internet. Uh, I still write some, but I, I ran a website called The Ontological Geek, which was a video games criticism website. And I did some writing and uh, blogging for some of those uh, associated kind of, you know, games crit sites. Uh, Joel did some of that as well, um, both with Onto Geek and on his own. So, I don't know. I guess we should talk about how we know each other, because we're not just like two random guys who. That's up, true. We, like, yeah. Personals add on Craigslist seeking <laughs> friends to discuss weird books. <laughs> well, to be fair, I did put that out there, but no, like, I only got responses that had like a, an unopened JPEG file, and I didn't open it. You know what That's I mean? probably like, was, smart. Yeah. So, yeah. So we we are, I, actually I was going to ask you this. I was I forgot I was going to ask you this. Do you remember the first time we literally met? I think so. Or at least I have a memory for that. And uh, let me tell you what you think about this. If you think we met earlier, I mean I'm sure we saw okay. each other earlier. But so right. we met freshman year of high school. Right. Uh, 2002, which is that's right, almost 16 years ago. That's oh a true story. God. The first memory I have is of walking into the room adjacent to the orchestra room where they had all the cellos and basses and stuff. I guess it was Ms. Harrison's office. And you said, what's up? And I said, ceiling tiles. And rather than doing the natural human thing and grabbing the back of my underwear and pulling it through my skull, you laughed and I think decided to take pity on this just incredibly strange kid who was coming from homeschool to a big high school. So that's the first memory I have. What did, what did you have? That's it. That's the yeah. answer. I can't believe you remembered it exactly. <laughs> no, yeah. I yeah, that was it, man. I remember. I mean, so that's yeah. So we've known each other a long time. Um, well, I remember we, we I think we came, we, we came closer over high school because we just kept doing the same things. We were in orchestra together. We, we did uh, drama together, yada, yada, yada. A lot of musical stuff that we did together. Um, and then you went to you went to college in Missouri. I went to college in Denver. But oddly enough, and we didn't hang out a ton, but we were both in Oxford for the same year, which I think is an important part of the past because... Agreed. I, yeah, it just it was an important year for both of us. But we stayed... We, we, but the big thing is we, we've, we, we kind of just stayed in contact, like stones skipping across, you know, uh, the pond of life. Um, <laughs> um, Joel, I no longer but, want to do this podcast with you. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I adjusted for the joke as soon as I heard myself going that direction. Um, <laughs> so, no. So, yeah, we've stayed in touch. Um, and I think we've continued. The cool thing is that we've continued, I think, to have adjacent interests that, you know, I, that for me, at least, I have a lot of friends who think about writing and, and so forth. But I, I still think that there is a, you know, there is something kismet about what, how you and I think about life and writing and art and faith and whatever that I think, you know, we're still drawn to each other about that, those big questions. I would agree. So, so yeah, so the hope for this podcast is that really, to be honest, it's that me and Bill can talk some more over the course of the year and that maybe some people want to listen in and talk with us. Uh, we, uh, I mean, I, at some point we'll be organized enough that we will maybe know what we're reading beforehand. We would invite people to read with us, but for this first time, obviously, <laughs> no, no heads up. Um, the book we chose, though, was... Uh, a classic that neither of us knew much about, actually, but it's a it's a nonfiction account by Apsley Cherry Garrard called "The Worst Journey in the World." It was published in 1921, I believe. Is that right? 21. Uh, I have 22 um, written down. Okay, thereabouts. We'll say we'll say 1922 because Bill wrote it down, um, which I liked. I did not, and it was it's about <laughs> it's about um, 
It's about the first English effort to reach the South Pole that was successful um, and the tragedy that ensued thereafter. Apsley Cherry Garrard, who we're going to call Cherry from now on, was part of the journey and wrote the book um, 11 years or so, I guess like nine years it would be after the journey took place, right? What else do we want to add about the book, Bill? Um, I guess, again, so it's a, it's a nonfiction account, but it's, it's a, dealing with a pretty famous expedition. Um, a lot of people were aware that Captain Scott's expedition ended in tragedy for everyone who actually made it to the South Pole. And so he's kind of writing in a context for people who already sort of know what's, what's going to happen for the very end of it, at least. And I, I think that definitely impacts the book as a whole and is something I think it's important to keep in mind as we start talking about this book. Right, and also that, I mean, so that there's, that there's a certain genre of books as well. So that there were, at this time in history, exploration to South Pole and to the North Pole only, you know, 30 years, even less earlier. It was a really big moneymaker for publishers. And so he's written this book, and it's come out after a bunch of other books. It's, you know, there are ongoing Antarctic journeys at the time he's writing it. And so he has a couple of missions with this book that he talks about. One, it's a recounting of this tragedy, this very famous tragedy, which, spoiler alert, you know, Robert Scott, who was sort of a Shackleton-esque famous explorer, um, dies along with four other men. And so this book recounts that in sort of personal terms, but he talks about that it's also a book meant to help future explorations if they yeah. really wanted to. So he's really, it's a really detailed book in the sense of talking about the people and what they're going through, but also talking about here was our measurements and here's exactly where we were, you know, here's the latitude and longitude we were hitting or, or, or whatever, right? He, he gives the scientific data within the narrative, which I thought as a lay reader, added a lot, but it also means the book has, I think, a couple different missions, and so there are times when you're just reading through basically scientific notes, which was a little harder sometimes. Yeah, there's a couple of sort of D&D first edition style tables of everything they brought with them on a trip, which, you know, however many <laughs> yes. pounds of this or that, and you're like, okay, I, I don't care, but nonetheless, yeah, it serves a different role. I'm not the reader for that, right? <laughs> yeah. I guess so, we should yeah. like a, a minute just sort of briefly going over sort of what goes down in the book for people who haven't read it. We don't want to try to provide a full summary of a 500-page book, probably. But no, but that's great. Some idea what we're referencing. So yeah. they load up, um, again, it's a three-year-long trip. Um, they, they, they reach Antarctica in 1910, and they don't get back, most of them, until 1913. Uh, they, they, they start by, they, they load up on this boat called the Terra Nova, which is just not well-designed for this purpose. And there's a long, long period of time when you're pretty sure they're going to sink uh, before they get to Antarctica. But they, they get there and they go on several separate trips. They have an initial trip where they kind of lay in food at these depots for the later South Pole journey, um, sort of dropping in food for later journeys. And there's two major journeys that we should make sure we mention. The first is what's called the winter journey, which is when Cherry himself and then two of the other sort of most important players, uh, Bertie Bowers, I think his name is actually Henry, but everyone calls him Bertie, and Dr. Bill Wilson, the three of them go in the middle of winter uh, all the way across Antarctica to get to an emperor penguin rookery to try to get a hold of some emperor penguin eggs. Um, and that's a whole, a whole thing. Um, and then later on, the actual trip to go to the South Pole, where um, basically everybody on the trip makes their way to the South Pole, or makes their way, start, starts on that journey, but only five men actually try to go to the South Pole itself. The rest of them just kind of help them out along the way and then turn back. And those five men are... are Captain Scott, um, Bill Wilson, who was also on the winter journey, Bertie Bowers, who was on the winter journey, and then two other men, Titus Oates and um, Seaman Evans. Um, and I think that's probably all you really need to know in the abstract before we go into it, because we're going to talk about, we hope to talk about this in some detail going forward, but I think having that structure might be helpful. 
Yeah, and if, I mean, we talk about the book in some ways as, as if you may have read it. We, we try not to do that too much, although it's hard not to. I'd recommend, I mean, Wikipedia, or if you're curious about stuff, a lot of it's online in the general form, um, including characters' names and whatnot. So if you want to look it up later... Whole, I think there's a whole Project Gutenberg trans... I think the whole thing is online for free, perfectly legal, I think, because it's old enough. Um, yeah, I think so too. Yeah, and it's it's a really... And I, what I will say as just a kind of a last way to... I don't know to, to either push this book or to, to recommend it. Is that I I would I mean I, I it's a really worthwhile book to read. It's not the kind of book that you or I usually read, um, but I think we can both say that it is it, its classic status seems well deserved. It's a really great book, um, and it and it offers a lot to think and talk about in in all kinds of directions. I would agree. So we're just gonna we'll just talk to each other. Hopefully as hopefully more and more normally as this continues, but we'll see what happens. Um, Okay, so you finished the uh, you finished the big read for this big read podcast, correct? I did finish the big read. I did not read the supplemental reads, but I read. read the I big didn't read. either. <laughs> we should we should actually talk about that for a second, though. About um, how did we come to choose this book? Uh, I I sent out a newsletter talking about Francis Spufford, and you suggested we should read this and Francis Spufford's other text about the winter journeys in general. Right? Is that right? That's what went down, yeah. Because I know you, you had introduced me to Francis Spufford some time ago for his book, Unapologetic, uh, which I had read and thoroughly enjoyed. And then earlier this year, I got a hold of his first novel, Golden Hill, which I read and thoroughly enjoyed. And then I can't remember if you put out... I can't, oh yeah, I think you put out in your newsletter that link to Francis Spufford discussing The Big Read this week. And I was like, well, why don't we just read this and then read this other also fairly long book, and then we can talk right. about it. And it turns out I that think, that's a lot. <laughs> I, I think I think my goal for this podcast is to say Francis Spufford, his full name, as many times as possible. What's his middle um, name? Does anybody know? We should find out. I, I don't know his middle name at all. Um, but I do think, so I, I guess I wanted to bring that up because, okay, so what's your background with reading big Arctic death books? Uh, it's nothing. This is the first big Arctic death book I've read. This, so this is mine too. So I remember in like middle school or high school, um, at some point in my life, and I was school aged, there was this this really important Shackleton IMAX movie. I don't yeah, know if you remember that. I do so remember Shackleton's that. like, and it was it was all about you know, these these modern people wanted to retrace Shackleton's famous like march with a couple of guys. And that's the only exposure I had to South Pole anything. And so we picked up this book, you and I, basically because we fully trust Francis Spufford, right? That's really the basis of our reading this. That's really what it boils down to, is if Francis Spufford says I should read a book, I, I think I should read that book. Yeah, and, and to the point where like I try not to follow what he says too much because I, I deviate from my normal reading patterns just to please him. Um, <laughs> If he we ever have, called me and had like a you know a conversation at the end of it, I think that I would at one point say accidentally, "All right, goodbye, Dad." <laughs> <laughs> we had and briefly it, discussed making this a Francis Spufford fan cast rather than actually a podcast about more substantive things. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. My so dearest far, hope so is good. that someday he. He, he finds out about this where we just managed to talk about him at length in the midst of podcasts which are ostensibly about other works and just feels deeply confused. That's my hope. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my hope too, I think. So I just I just wanted to clear but I wanted to definitely establish that we don't know anything about the Arctic death book genre. That yeah. we're not like like you and I read a lot. I I have an actual masters in essentially reading um, in the Victorian era, but like I don't have any knowledge of. I mean, I I actually had to look. Up, I knew the name. I had to look up who Robert Scott was. 
um, as I was reading the book, because they just kept calling him by his last name, expecting you to know who all these famous explorers are, and I didn't. I didn't know who any of them were except for Shackleton. I kept goofing up his name because I was just reading uh, Chernow's biography of Grant, and there's a lot of talk in there about General Winfield Scott, who was very important in the gotcha. Civil War and in the Mexican-American War. And so I kept saying, yeah, Captain Winfield Scott. Nope, that's a different guy. That's a yeah. different guy 60 years earlier. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, yeah, r- different continent, I guess. Um, it is different context entirely. Um, yeah. So, okay, so I, so let's let's talk about this big book, man. Um I wanted to just basically, uh, so Francis Buffard, I will use him as a jumping off point. He talks about this this book kind of, um, you know, it, like this journey kind of consumes, we're going to call it, by the way, okay, the author's name is something like Apsley Cherry Garrard, right? That's what we decided on. We decided something uh, like that, yes. Which is difficult for me because my favorite footballer, uh, so- like soccer player, is Steven Gerrard. And my favorite poet is Gerard Manley Hopkins. And I'm pretty sure that this mofo is called Gerard, which so we're just going to call him Cherry for short, right? Which appears to be what people called him at the time as well. Although yeah, in the book he's known as Cherry, which is a pretty a pretty great nickname to be honest. Yeah, um, works for me. So okay, so he talks about the Cherry is like consumed with this journey that he goes through in 19. 19- like 10-ish, 11, that's like 11 to 13, right, or something, I think? I think it's, I think they start in 10 and they end in 13. Yeah, okay, so, um, so he's obsessed with this the rest of his life, basically, and, and so I, so he makes an argument for, like, what the book is really centered on, and a book this big, I think there's actually, it's hard to make an argument that there's a center, but the first thing I wanted to talk about was, like, who is the protagonist of this book? Because Scott is the most famous, um, but it's from Cherry's perspective, and yet, like, is Cherry the protagonist, or is someone else the protagonist? I mean, again, it's, it's a, you know, it's nonfiction, but I think it still follows narrative rules more than not. So, yeah, who do you think is the protagonist? I think, to the extent there is a protagonist, it's actually Bertie Bowers. Um, I totally agree. I totally agree with this. So, I mean... I- you know, as you suggest, I'm not sure there is really one protagonist. You know, for long sections of time, Cherry and Bowers aren't in the same place, and so we're only hearing about, you know, what Bowers did either through his diary or from Cherry describing it later. But I think he's the one that actually the book is sort of centered around. He's he's certainly the 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 I don't want to say character because he was a real person, but the the person that Cherry seems most sort of uh, almost obsessed with. That's maybe a little right. strong, but like he's constantly stopping to tell us how great Bertie Bowers was. And my how... favorite my favorite Bertie Bowers fact is that he doesn't get cold. Yeah. Like everyone else is wearing like you know, they're like they've killed mini seals and dressed themselves in blubber and Bowers is wearing like a tank top. Like that's like it's like, there's elements at one point he like literally is wearing a short sleeve shirt in the South Pole, I think. Um which yeah, I think just not like, on the South Pole itself, but in Antarctica. Yeah, in Antarctica. Yeah, yeah. He's wearing... in Antarctica, the region, in an, on an island at one point, he's the only guy who's like, in his diary, he's like, apparently everyone else is freezing, but I'm, I'm doing okay. I just, I think there, there are people I know like that, and I think it's just the funniest fact that, I don't know, he's going to the South Pole and he can't get cold. And also, Cherry thinks he can't get, he can't get cold. Do you remember why? Because he, he was stationed in India for so long. Yeah, no, that's right. He, <laughs> He absorbed the heat of India for enough months that he now 
you know, is immune to weather changes. <laughs> no, Cherry has this whole theory that, like, where you were just before you went on this expedition impacted how, not, not just how you felt, because Bowers actually doesn't get frostbite the way everyone else does, right? right. Like, it's not just that he's being macho or that he's used to it. He, he doesn't suffer the physical effects the way some of these other guys do. Yeah. Even, every, not until the very is... end does he really get frostbitten feet. Like, the whole other time, it's like, yeah, Wilson and I were just really having a rough time, and Bowers <laughs> was fine. <laughs> yeah. I, no, no. He's, he's the greatest, and it's... I do think that, and I, and I, we're gonna, I wanna, don't, I don't wanna lose the thread of the protagonist too much, but I just wanted to, to say what I love about this book so much is it can do something that, like, fiction is always trying to do, which is it's trying, fiction's always trying to discover, like, different forms and how do we, you know, how do we change up, like, the narrative so that the form is really carrying the meaning and not just the content. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and I, I think this book, because it relies on these multi-voiced accounts that, like, I, I loved it when we, we would just slip into, you know, Bowers' diary. And we would, and you, every time it was, you know, you could tell it was a different person. Yeah. He, he focused on different things. And so even though, like, Cherry wrote the book, in a lot of ways, for a lot of the most important sections, he's just arranging it, right? He's not even the author. He's just the arranger for so much of this book, which I think is a really, that's the only way to tell this story. Well, absolutely, and particularly for the depiction at the end of the, the ill-fated, the polar journey and the party as they're dying. Like, of course, Cherry wasn't there, and the only accounts are these diaries. Right. And, you know, Scott wrote extensively even as he was dying, and Bowers quit writing after a while, but Wilson wrote a lot. And so, yeah, that particularly those last few chapters, it's just, you know, he, you, it's just, he, he, he's just kind of cutting between them, you know. Right. And then this happened, and here's this quote. And I, it is definitely really interesting to see what all these different men were focusing on, on the... You know, on this journey, because they're all experiencing some of the same things, and, and a lot of it, I think, is pretty monotonous. You're just carrying this sledge, you know, across <laughs> tremendous distances and all tripping and falling in the same holes. But, you know, Cherry's uh, depiction of Bowers is just insufferably cheerful. Is sort of borne out by his diary, where he's always just like, "Yeah, no, it's yes. fine. It's weird. Every people are upset, but I don't get what they're worried about. It's fine." <laughs> I know. I I did. I I love that so much that I actually love that he, t he said it about multiple people at one point. That like. Um, they just didn't have a bad word for each other, and that that one of the reasons he thinks that the you know the exploration team was successful to the extent that it was was sort of a disaster actually, Cherry. Yeah. But um, you know that every, like for the most part, no one complained, right? That like they would be in the worst circumstances, and no one. I don't know. It, we'll come to some of that stuff later. I let me let me get back to the protagonist thread because I do think I think Bowers, like Bill Wilson, you know the other guy who goes on the. Because there's multiple journeys, right? There's the winter journey, which is yeah. just Cherry, Wilson, and Bowers. And then there's the South Pole journey, which is like everyone at first, and then it, it sort of dwindles down to just the people who are going to the actual pole. Yeah. Um, but like Bowers and Wilson are the only ones who who are on the, the two big journeys, right? The winter journey and um, the South Pole expedition where, you know, they don't make it back. And I think, I think like, Bill is, like, a good side character that I, I want, like, I want to meet him. But I do think Bowers, for some reason, because um, more than once, Cherry says, this is the one guy who, who really shouldn't have died. Everyone thought he was the hardiest. He didn't get cold. Um, you know, like, when he was introduced to Scott, his captain told Scott, basically, this guy is going to lead his own stuff one day. And so I think there's like this really clear tragic arc to Bowers that no one else quite has. I mean, it's yeah. everyone, I mean, it, it, they're not tragic for everyone, but like, yeah, I just think we see it for him more for some reason. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, he's there on both of the two important journeys, and he's, 
I think he also clearly had more of a personal relationship with Cherry than some of the other guys did. You get you get that impression, at least I did. And so I think Cherry feels more confident talking about him than some of the others. Like, Scott seems to maintain some distance and be sort of mysterious for a long time. Even well, and I think there's also... Is, and so this is where, like, the history the of the big one polar death book genre comes into play. Because, like, Scott is... I mean, so his last journals of this expedition have already been published before this book was published, right? Um, I think that's right. And so he was like, I think his stuff was like well-established and I think Bill Wilson was kind of well-established. So I also think that's where like Cherry, I kept thinking about like the craft elements because that's, that's where my head goes. And I, I think he, you know, he's making it a person, it's always a personal choice, but like no one knows who Bowers is, right? Yeah. Like, like Bill Wilson is pretty famous. Scott is, you know, world famous. But Bowers is this kind of unknown, scrappy, dwarf-like, you know, I think of him as like a Tolkien dwarf, right? He's kind of stout and small yeah. and, and immune to the cold um, and can run while everyone else skis, right? Like he's always like, he's the one guy who's keeping up while everyone else is skiing. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I think that's part of it too, is that he has a rich background that no one else knows about. Um, okay, so protagonist we, we think is basically Bowers. But is, okay, so this relates to my other question, though, that I, I'm really excited to talk about. Um, this book is impossible to read without projecting yourself into it, I yeah. think. Who are you in this book? If you, if, you're, if, you, if you have to choose from the selected characters, like an RPG mission, which is such a dishonorable thing to say about people who actually died, I apologize for that immediately. Yeah, they died years uh, ago. They don't matter. They've been dead for a while. There's, there's a threshold. If you've been dead for a while, we're not going to honor you in the same way if you just died. I think that's, I think that's a good rule for life. I think it's, you know, at some point, people become just, just <laughs> mythical figures and not actually people anymore. And the fact that, undoubtedly, you know, somebody is still alive who met some of these people probably doesn't matter. <laughs> I think I think that is probably true. And actually, I think this is really off topic. But don't you think that's totally related to like this whole like ongoing conversation with um, bad moral agents who are making good art? Like, I think I mean I think it's like a kind of a crass thing to say, but like it is pretty easy to read these terrible Victorian or even like Edwardian philosophers or novelists who were. Or even like Bing Crosby, right? Who was sort of a terrible person, apparently. I honestly, I watch White Christmas. And I don't feel bad about it. But like, I, you know, I, I, at this point, I don't feel bad about watching an old Woody Allen film. But it is weird to like the idea of like watching a Roman Polanski film. Yeah. Like I'm still supporting this guy who was convicted of rape. You know what I mean? Like he's alive, getting profit off of this stuff. I, I do think there's a difference between reading, like supporting, you know, reading or talking about or, or, or really sort of supporting art by someone who's been dead for a long time and was lousy versus someone who is still like deriving actual active financial profit from it, you know? Like I, I have this problem all the time because, as you well know, I for some reason inexplicably decided that I really cared a lot about Howard Phillips Lovecraft. Right. I'm not really sure why or when I decided that I did, but I did yeah. at some point. And, you know, Lovecraft is by and large a pretty terrible person, right? Like, he's, yeah. he's just incredibly racist. And, and I don't mean, like, because it was... I mean, like, he's incredibly racist for 1930. For like, his time, <laughs> yeah. He wasn't... It wasn't just like, oh, people were racist for a couple hundred years there. No, he was like... People were like, hey, bro. <laughs> yeah, people at the time were like, Howard, down. come on. Um, and, you know, he, he, he did a lot of nice things for other writers and stuff, but he's just, just, just comically racist all the time. And I would never, like... If he was wandering around here in 2018 with some sort of similar views, I would never be like, oh, I'm such a big HPL guy. You know, I love him so much and I love all of his work. But because he's been dead for 70-something years or 80-something years, I guess, at this point, 
I feel okay with it. And I, I don't think that's entirely... I don't think that's just hypocritical. I think there is a difference between like, providing active financial support <laughs> yeah. to someone who is still running around versus someone who, who isn't. You know, there's, there's not even a Lovecraft estate anymore. Well, and I think what's also... I mean, this is, this is more dicey, because I remember a couple years ago... I think this was a couple years ago. Heidegger's like so-called black books came out. Do you know what I mean? Like he yeah. had these like journals that had never they had never been released, and he like he I think he put them under like like he said they can't be released for a long time because they basically showed that he bought into some of the German Volk theory stuff, which yeah. you know the Aryan superiority complex that the Nazis used to <clears throat> murder some Jews for a while there, um, which is not meant to be flip. Sorry, I don't mean like that was, um, but. Uh, but, you know, and so it's interesting because I feel, I feel like, so I still find Heidegger very helpful in some ways, like, thinking about, you know, ontology or whatever. But at the same time, like, he does, there is this weird way in which, like, the idea of a normative race, I feel like it does, sorry to make you talk about philosophy on a podcast about, you know, <laughs> an Arctic exploration. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but he, but so, like, there's a way in which the normative race stuff, I feel like, plays into his normative docine stuff, you know, like, the way that being is, yeah. felt, like, there's a normative thread, which I feel like is skeevier than, like, like I don't know, like, there's philosophers who I think had skeevy ideas, but they, it seems like their philosophy could kind of transcend their worst selves, do you know what I mean? And so yeah. that, I feel, like that I, feel, I feel like that's at play in art as well. Like, there are plenty of artists, like, uh, Evelyn Waugh, I feel like his best books transcend his worst self, you know? And I don't feel bad reading him. Well, and, and I'm going to talk about Lovecraft some more because I always want to talk about Lovecraft. But this is related to that. Like, a lot of people will try to say, yeah, Lovecraft was very racist and it's in some of the stories, but all of his good stories are separate from all of that or there's just a little bit on it. And you can totally read him without thinking about it. And I think that's wrong. Um, Michelle Welbeck, who is, of course, himself a very uh, complicated character, um, but he wrote, a, right. he wrote a biography of Lovecraft where he actually argues that Lovecraft's fear of you know, his xenophobia is actually essential to all of his stories, and I think that's right. I think that it's it's hard not to read a lot of his really good stuff as still being kind of inextricably tangled up in this sort of racist xenophobic fear of everything he doesn't understand. And that you know that's a that's a that is kind of a tough thing. So like, yeah, the Call of Cthulhu is a phenomenal story. It's also mm -hmm. premised on some really troubling assertions, and I don't really know how to handle that. Right. Well, I mean, that's similar to like, I mean, I think. Um yeah, no, I think, so I, I, I think Mountains of Madness, the copy that I have, it has an essay in the front by, it's possibly by uh, Me, uh, Meville, China Meville, did I say his name? I'm sorry. actually not sure, it might be China, I don't actually know. Actually, sorry, sorry, bro, we don't necessarily know. Sorry, man, um, I know you're listening. <laughs> yeah, we, we know you're out there looking for your big read Antarctic journey fix. And let me just give a caveat, by the way, before I go any further. I'm going to have, if not Spoonerisms, something they're like throughout this podcast. I'm going to say Arctic, I'm going to mean Antarctic, and everyone feel free to correct me, but like everyone should realize that like you know sometimes they just I have new dad brain right now, um, and I say wrong noun. But, uh, but yeah, he makes the argument that like the the indistinct, unknowable fear in the mountains of madness, like you know that, that, that it's, it's based like he compares it at one point. Because actually in the book there's like a comparison between like the subway and whatever's, you know... Yeah, that's actually like the best part of the book. But anyway, yes. It is the best <laughs> part of the book. Totally agree. But like he compares it to like like this is the the, the masses that Lovecraft is afraid of <laughs> have just been, you know, put into the book as this like unknowable, dirty thing that's like hunting you. <laughs> I, I don't yeah. know. I, I'm, I'm missing it a little bit. But like I, but to your point, 
Um, I don't know, because I, I feel like I'm on the other side, too, though, where I say that I, I do think that he abstracted his fear enough from actual humans that, like, and maybe a terrible moment for myself, as someone who doesn't want to be racist, I relate to that. Do you know what I mean? Like, like when, those, when, they're, when they're fearful of this great unknown, um, that I think he abstracts it to a level where, like, I, I feel that. I relate to that fear. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean... I, Lovecraft isn't... People aren't still talking about this weird man from Providence however many years later because his stuff wasn't relatable. Like, that's... <laughs> no, yeah, that's... Of course, of course. Um, I, I, okay, I know, I, I, I think they're very compelling stories. But anyway, let's actually talk about um, I know, The Worst is, Journey in the World. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And not... Um, although, I think this is the nature of this podcast, probably. Is, I hope um, so, because <laughs> I've got a lot of tangents <laughs> going through my head right now that I'm really holding together. <laughs> um, all right, yeah, what do you want to talk about with this book? Well, I think, uh, and you had mentioned this in a, some sort of our pre-conversation, but one of the things you, you read when you read a nonfiction account of people undergoing this sort of horrible trial, right, is, is pe- people always want to talk about these things as being inspirational, right? Mm-hmm. They want to talk about how it's, oh, it's so inspiring to read this, this work of great triumph over insurmountable odds and of great personal courage, and, um, and it is that, but it's also sort of helpful for putting things into focus and context. It's helpful for being like, right, look, about 100 years ago, a bunch of guys went to the Antarctic without any idea what they were doing and pulled around hundreds of pounds of stuff, and then right. most of them got out alive. I can go to work today. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can, I'm not sure I can do that. I can probably go to work today. I can get out of bed in the morning. Um, and I did, yeah, did you have any specific moments? Because I remember there was one time, so I, I, I listened to this book partly on audiobook, actually, um, and I was back home in Colorado, we're both from Colorado, which maybe we talked about in the intro, who knows? Um, I was back home from Colorado for Christmas, and you were back this Christmas as well, right? So you were yep. in Denver? And it I was, was, well, not in Denver, you, but I was in Colorado. Yeah, you were on the, the West Slope or whatever, but um, in Ure, but, or Ure, is that where you were? Uh, well, I was actually mostly in Rocky Ford, and then I spent a little bit of time over in Olathe, which is not too okay. far from your Okay. Okay. Um, but, so the point being, I mean, it's always cold in the mountains, but Denver was abnormally frigid. And so I kept going, I, I, get, I didn't bring enough clothes, basically. Um, so I kept going for runs and just freezing, but I had this stupid audiobook, and I was at the point where, like, everyone's dying in the cold. <laughs> And so, like, I was like, oh, I guess I can probably finish my three-mile run on, you know, on shoveled pavement. Um, and, and, again, I just, like, it was, like, the most motivational running book that I've ever listened to, for sure. Well, that makes So, I don't know how it was in Syracuse, but in Minneapolis about two weeks ago, it got quite cold. Um, and, you know, it was negative 20 and stuff like that a couple times. Kind of, kind of poked it. Didn't spend a lot of time there. Right. And... I remember thinking, gosh, you know, and it was, that's, that's, yeah, it's cold enough, it's, it is dangerous sometimes, right? Um, and so I'm walking around, I'm just trying to, like, walk my dogs briefly, uh, just enough for them to, you know, do what they got to do. And it's cold, and I'm just like, gosh, this is miserable. And then I read something, I was like, yeah, and on the winter journey, to get the emperor penguins, they were hanging out at negative 60, negative 50. And I was I like, know. I can't even, <laughs> I want to die. Like, I'm outside for two minutes, and I'm just like, yes, this is it. <laughs> Come for me, sweet embrace of death. Yeah. And these guys were... Running around in the Antarctic for weeks at 30, 40 degrees less than this. <laughs> no, anytime, anytime I had any kind of like minor endurance test, whether it was like 
oh, I don't want to get up, or like, oh, I don't want to go write this, you know, book that I'm working on, or I don't want to like, any anything, no matter how small it was, if I, if I, during the whole time I read this book, if I had resistance, I thought of not only how much these guys went through, but I, I thought of that, what we talked about earlier, how cheerful they were the whole time, right? That yeah. they were like, they were, and I think, I think I will say like, that strikes me as true in life, to be honest. Like, um, I do think the times when I've been most under the gun, and not because, like, I have a great character or anything, but I think when you hit rock bottom, there is this weird relief that happens where you can kind of just say, all right, well, I guess we're here, and i got to trudge along. Like, even, like, um, you know, I mean, like, uh, I, I, this is going to Okay. The birth <laughs> of my child was not rock bottom. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but, I mean, um... I do, you know, like, the labor itself, um, I, you know, my, my daughter's four months old, so, like, the labor in September was super intense, and, like, it was, you know, it's worse than we thought it would be, and it took forever, like, to get the baby out, and then, of course, the first two weeks, like, you're just in this, like, sort of dream state of wondering when life will stabilize, yeah. um, and honestly, in some ways, like, I think in some ways I was more cheerful and kind of optimistic and sort of go with the flow then than I am now even, right? Because like now there's some stability and some sluggardliness in my life again, whereas then it was like, yeah, I'm up four times a night, you know what, I'm just gonna read while Emily breastfeeds and then we'll keep going. Like, it's just gonna be what it is. Um, so yeah, I love that part of the book. Well, I, I feel kind of funny about it in a couple ways, because one, you know, that's useful to have some other reason to, you know, focus and get your work done or to, you know, anything that helps, right? Yeah. But on the other hand, it feels sort of cheap, right? Like, <laughs> this is something, I, I know disability rights activists talk about this all the time. You, you should never call someone who is in a wheelchair, uh, you should never talk about how inspiring they are. Uh, and for reasons that I think make a ton of sense, because they... they you, you read people talk about it, and they say it just reduces me to a tool in your sort yes. of mental workshop. Yeah. Uh, and and I, th I think it's quite right that people don't like that. And this isn't quite the same situation, of course, because these men are you know, long dead and, and they're in a book. But I don't want to be like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I read about the time that all of these brave men perished in the cold, and you know what I did? I build another hour this day. Right. You know, I really yes. wrote that brief. Like, it feels sort I of set like disrespectful. I said with a good attitude. <laughs> <laughs> like, I guess it's good because I should build that hour, but it, it feels sort of disrespectful. It feels sort of like... No, I think I think that's true. I mean, I think, I think what always happened in the moments where I would, like, you know, be, like, shoveling the walk and think about, you know, like, oh, God, I'm shoveling a walk and I'm mad about it, and, you know, Cherry lost his two best friends in, like, the Antarctic... Um, what was always, I think what always struck me was, like, how ridiculous it was. Do you know what I mean? Like, how ridiculous it was to, to not only, like, you know, not only had to, not only, I was ridiculous for being a, a, a wuss, but also that, like, I, there's literally no way to understand what they went through. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's, I can't, I, I like, even though, even though this kind of book is all about projection, I think, in some ways, like, if, if it titillates you or it excites you, part of it's because, Initially, at least, I don't think you you don't you don't finish a book for this. But initially, you're like, well, what would it be like? You know, like what would it be yeah. like to go through this with them? And then by the end of it, I think it, there's no way to say other than you have to say to yourself, I, I I can never I can never know. Which is kind of a you know that's an easy thing to an easy conclusion to come to. Except that I don't know. It feels kind of profound when the tragedy is so I don't know complete. You know what I mean? Like cherry. I think is haunted by this the rest of his life, right? He doesn't do anything else. He doesn't write. He doesn't write a second book even. He yeah. writes one book and he goes on one exploration and then he's done. 
Yeah, the, uh, so the, I don't know, which, do you have the Penguin uh, print? I do, yeah. Classics? Yeah. So there's that intro by Carolyn Alexander, which I didn't read super carefully because I wanted to come to my own opinions. But she talks about how in 35, um, he applied to join a gentleman's club in London. And yes. when asked to state his profession, he said, author and explorer. <laughs> and uh, she says, get, could have been perceived as somewhat overblown, given that he had written precisely one book and had participated in precisely one expedition a quarter of a century earlier. But she argues that it was actually, it was perfectly honest. Just the, the fact that he hasn't done anything since, this one was so sort of traumatic and so important, both in his own consciousness and in the consciousness of, of England, yeah. that, yeah, no, he is an author and explorer, even though that's, you know, four years of his life or five years of his life or whatever. And that's I, No, I, I totally agree. I think I, that was, yeah, that was a decent intro. There's a, there's a, I think I mentioned this to you. There's, you know, the Folio Society, they're a publisher in England. They do like yeah. really nice uh, editions of stuff. I spent <clears throat> a lot of money buying their Chron- Chronicles of Narnia edition at one point in my life, yeah. which I'm not proud of, but I do love. Um, <laughs> But uh, I they were having like a New Year's sale, and so I was like looking through it and like dreaming about stuff that I never buy. It's kind of like looking at sports cars, you know, like I'm yeah, not gonna buy a sports car. Um, but F- Francis Spufford does the intro for the Folio Society edition, mm-hmm. um, and I was like, well, at some point I maybe I may have to get that because Francis, let's not forget, you know, sort of the patron saint of our conversation. Yeah, but, absolutely. Um, we should genuflect before an icon of St. Francis before every... <laughs> I mean, his <laughs> picture's before me at all times, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how he'd feel about that. Um. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's true. Genuflect in general, but also, you know, I mean, you know, Anglican, he's, they like saint. We like, I'm kind of Anglican these days. We like saints. We're not, you know, it's a little iffy. Like super into saints, yeah. Fair um, enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, okay, so, that, so that, okay, let's, let's, I'm going to hopefully not, you know, preempt maybe... I want to I want to not lose the thread of some of the specific stuff in the book too much, but I I do think this book is hard because it's like the specifics are so specific it's hard to talk about almost because it feels redundant. You know what I mean? Like, like you remember the sledding that happened? It was amazing, right? Yeah, there was it was there was a bunch of it. Yeah, <laughs> but I do think so. I want to talk about some of that actually at some point. But I I I for me this book I just kept you know going to these big ideas about the biggest idea I kept I came back to. Um, was that more than once, and I actually, let me find it real quick, because I have it marked. Um, so he, t- he talks about, like, why are we doing this? People want to always ask us, why are you doing this? You know, what's the point of this journey? Especially he's writing this, you know, six, seven years after everyone knows what happened. This is a yeah. great disaster. And also the worst part is, like, that a Munson, the Norwegian that they're competing with, um, he goes he goes to the South Pole almost like almost like it's a holiday right and yeah. so there's this huge question of like was it worth it and even more than before that was it worth it why did you even do this and so he at one point he says um i believe that in a vague and tangible way there was an ideal in front of and behind this work it is really not desirable for men who do not believe that knowledge is of value for its own sake yeah. to take up this kind of life the question constantly put to us in, in civilization was, was and still is, what's the use? Is there gold? Is there coal? The commercial spirit of the present day can see no good in pure science. And again, he says at one point, just as blunt as possible, um, we sought this out uh, that the world may have a little more knowledge, that it may build on what it knows instead of on what it thinks. And so I, I don't know, I wanted to ask you, I mean, do you buy that? Do you think that, like, the knowledge for knowledge's sake 
is like is that enough of a reason i guess but also is it the reason well i think i mean i was constantly struck by how much sort of science with a capital you know capital exclamation mark they were doing right because they're, they're always yeah. talking about how even once they found all of their friends corpses they're still trying to do like take measurements and do all these kinds of things. And, and Bowers is freezing to death, and almost every night he's still recording, recording temperatures. Yeah. You know, and I, I, so I think you certainly have to engage with that. And I don't know much about the Amundsen or Amundsen or however you say it expedition, other than what is described in here, which of course is not an entirely objective account, probably. <laughs> right. But the way he described it, as though they just were like, no, we're going to go to the pole, we're going to come back. Um, he, he tries to draw this sort of distinction between that expedition, which was sort of goal oriented and sort of. For the only for the purpose of flag planting, as opposed to mm-hmm. um, the Scott expedition, which is always trying to do sort of seek out strange new worlds and you know to, to do all that kind of thing, right? Uh, I, I think you have to at least account for the fact that he wants to really emphasize the science throughout, but there does seem to be a lot of it. Like they're one of the reasons they keep pulling the sledge, the polar party years they're dying is because they've got all these fossils, <laughs> right? Yeah, right? they have all yeah they have all these these rocks, right, or whatever. Yeah. And they, they add like 30 pounds of weight to it. Um, and, and some people have, you know, since come out and criticized and said they should have just left that there and they might have made it. And Cherry thinks that's not true. And, I mean, it's true. I can't imagine 30 pounds made that big difference. But, you know, in those their last few diary entries, they're talking about just trying to get their knowledge closer. Like, they understand that they're, they're, they're dead. They just want to try to get things a little closer so that someone will find it. I, I think that's, that there's... Yeah, that's really well said. I like that. I think that the science is, is certainly important. I can't imagine that's the only reason people went here. Right, like I feel like it may have been partly a, a self narrative. You know, I'm gonna, I'm doing this for science. Well, I suspect you're also doing it because you want to do something no one's ever done before, and so on. But, well, I, I think I picked up on the thread so intensely because I, I liked the idea of the knowledge for knowledge's sake because I feel like, um, so I've, I've had to teach a few college courses this last couple of years, right, and my students just have no concept of the idea of education for education's sake, and I realized yeah. that like. I didn't either, I don't think, until, I mean, maybe I was past college. I mean, I don't know when it hit me that I was really not interested in, like, getting a degree, you know, to get a job. It must have hit me in college because I was a creative writing and philosophy major. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I think I knew that I wasn't going to get a job out of those. But I think, you know, like, but even even beyond that, even when people are advocating for liberal arts and specifically for, you know, the softer liberal arts such as English or history or, or philosophy – um, they always break it down into skills, right? That like, yeah. oh, you should know how to write and read so you have skills, for example, to be a lawyer or to, to do yada yada. And that's what's hard for me is like, that is true. Like That, that is not inaccurate. I, I do think that most successful people in the world, um, you know, have a skill set that includes critical reading and, you know, effective writing or whatever. But it seems to me like that, like, but in my, in my head at least, or what I think I've come to is like, but those are secondary reasons, right? Like those are reasons that, are beneficial to you, but they're secondary to what education should be, which is like for education's sake. That's my, I think I've come to that more. Um, and so I love this idea of like the whole reason that we're going to you know, spend millions of, you know, current dollars at least getting from England to New Zealand to the South Pole is partly just so we can like inch up the column of knowledge we have currently. I don't know if I buy it. But I, I love that idea. Well, I think it's... So I loved... Um, in, in his chapter where he's describing the winter journey, which is the journey he took with Bowers and Wilson to go look at emperor penguin eggs, um, right. he ends it with that three or four page quote from 
the report uh, by the guy who actually dissected the eggs, which is a professor at Edinburgh University. And um, the last paragraph of that is, um, if the conclusions arrived at with the help of the emperor penguin embryos about the origin of feathers are justified, the worst journey in the world in the interest of science was not made in vain. And I think, like, it's such a funny thing, right? Because that, that journey is horrible, right? Mm-hmm. Like, reading about it, it's just it's just viscerally upsetting. They should like, have they, died. They should they have died. They definitely should have died. <laughs> you know, they, they can't get into their sleeping bags because the water, that you know, like, the, the moisture that has come off of their bodies has frozen the sleeping bags shut. Right. And, like, putting on their clothes takes, like, 15 minutes of getting hit by the other guys to break the clothes, the ice, into the shape where they can get into it. You know, at one point, Cherry talks about freezing to the ground because his clothes are just solid sheets of ice and he can't move for a short period of time. Like, like their tent blows away. Like, it's just this horrible thing. And they all, all three of them survive that journey. And they do it so they can get access to an emperor penguin egg and pickle it and take it back to England so someone can study this bird. Right, and not for some great, you know, it doesn't they don't no one thinks it's providing the cure to cholera or something. It's mm-hmm. just because we want to know more about birds, and <laughs> like <laughs> on the one hand, no, well that's but that's what I mean though. Is like I I think I I, I that's why I'm so attracted to that idea. But I I do feel like um like I think people are cool going with that idea when it comes to science because science has given us such concrete things. So even like uh learning about birds more, or, like, he talks about, like, the, you know, the, um, learning about the, it, it might actually help us understand our own biology in some ways, and that's, you know, going to help medicine, or, or whatever, right, there's really concrete, or, like, or even, like, the classic example is that the polar journeys, a little like NASA, maybe, like, invented technology that then yeah. was actually very useful in modern life, you know, that was actually better for, you know, like, Velcro has been a lot better for toddlers than it probably has been for astronauts, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but so, I, so for me, like it feels like it feels like a bit of a red herring in the sense of yeah, we're doing this for knowledge for knowledge's sake, except that we know how practical science will event. Like at some point, this will this this may lead to this, may lead to this, but like scientific knowledge almost always will add to a practical thing at some point. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, but I, I know what you mean, and I've been thinking a lot about some of that sort of education for education's sake stuff recently as well. I, I have a lot of weird hobbies that don't do anything right like right one thing i do is record podcasts about big books with a friend of mine <laughs> right like i yeah i was trying to talk about this to a friend <laughs> it was, it was like, yeah so i'm gonna start this podcast with this friend we're gonna we're gonna read these big books and we're gonna talk I about know. them and what are you starting with it's like well we're starting with this book about antarctic exploration just just silence <laughs> like just a wash of non-comprehension right. um from, from intelligent like thoughtful people um and you know, on the one hand, why, why did I read this book, right? I, I don't know. I read this book because this other writer I like, who's also not, like, terribly important, like, in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> like, he had a book reviewed well in The New Yorker, right? Like, but right. I read this book because that other guy said it was a cool book about this super niche subject. But, like, I'm not going to do anything with this, probably. I no. guess maybe next time I'm freezing to death in Minneapolis, I'll, maybe I'll either have a better time getting through it, just sort of morale-wise, or maybe I'll learn something. But, like, I... I I read it because it would be cool to read it. Like, right. Well, and, and I don't. And you, go ahead. Go sorry. Ahead. Um, that's so sort of. <laughs> that's gonna. Man, happen. this is gonna happen a lot. <laughs> all right. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You go ahead. I swear to God. <laughs> all right. All right. But 
at the same time, like, it can be very fun. I guess I think a lot about sort of ivory tower stuff lately, right? Because I have all these, these sort of writing things I've been doing off and on throughout the last few years and these these books I read, and they have no immediate practical import. And I, I mm -hmm. definitely don't want to say it's bad because it doesn't change the world, and I think it's very valuable. But I'm trying to find this balance between cool stuff I think about which makes me happy and I enjoy reading about, and I guess in some sort of abstract sense makes me a better writer and thinker. But I also feel like, particularly you know, without getting political, like 2016 and 2017 were really weird, right? And 2018 is shaping up to be really weird. Yeah. And trying to feel like, what are my obligations as a citizen in a democracy to like try to stand up and say things I think should be said? Should I use mm -hmm. these, these, these skills insofar as I have them that I've developed by reading weird books about Antarctic exploration? Like, should I use them in some way? Like, what is this? How do, what do I do with all this? And I, I think it's a, it's a, I don't have an answer. I don't have like, and then I had a great epiphany. I'm, I'm still struggling through all of this. But I think that's related to some of this education for education's sake. Like if, if right. I, or, or sort of science for science's sake. Like if I, if I go on this horrible journey and rescue these penguin eggs and it turns out to be essentially useless, right? Like we know a smidge more about feathers, but so what? Like, is that still worth doing? I don't know. They seem to think it was, and I'll just have to trust them, I think. Well, and that's I. That's really I like the the very last thing you said, especially was I think spot on in the sense that like f somehow Cherry thinks it is worth it. I think right that he really thinks yeah. that I and that, and that's where I think like there's this uh you know like uh and I'm not I'm I'm actually like okay I'm not a huge fan of like big data as an explanation for the world. You know what I mean? Like I I think that gets yeah. really old really quick. But there is this idea. It's actually in I think it's sports statistics more than anything else that like. Um, like the individual outcome shouldn't determine um, how you judge the individual decision. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. like in, okay, and I apologize for talking about sports. Not only, no, fine. not only to you, but to myself, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but like, so like in football, like there's this whole argument that like if you're if you're like you're driving towards someone else's t you know end zone, and if you're if you're a certain point on the field, um, and you're on fourth down that you should always go for it if you're within like three yards, right? That it's like, statistically speaking, it'll it'll help you um, with field position or whatever more if you, longitudinally, if you go for it every time than if you don't. But of course, like, as soon as a coach goes for it and gets stuffed, everyone's like, oh, that was a terrible decision, right? He shouldn't yeah. have gone for that. But actually, like, that's not how it necessarily works as far as, the decision can't, the individual decision can't always be judged on the individual outcome. And I think that's partly what Cherry would argue for this, is that, like, look, we're one journey and a bunch of journeys. And he even says at one point, like, look, I, I don't know if um, Amundsen, Amundsen, we don't have to say his name either, um, or, if we don't know if our competition would have actually chosen the better route if it wasn't for us, right? Yeah. So, like, and also there's these past journeys and there's these future journeys. And so to view this journey as like, well, you shouldn't do Antarctic explorations because everyone died. But but actually, you know, but actually, of course, important things have been learned about ocean life and about, you know, yada, yada, things that I don't know anything about, I'm sure. But and so I, I don't know. I think that's that that's the first thing I would say is like, you know, the, the outcome doesn't necessarily nullify the effort. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely right. I think that's a lot of what his his argument is, is. Yeah, you know, things went pretty badly, and I'm sure we made some mistakes, although he, he's pretty defensive about the mistakes yes. that other people have asserted. He, he comes pretty strongly, like, no, with the information we knew at the time, this was what we should have done. And he's always very, he, both he and the other people on the trip, when he quotes them in diaries, are always very, 
yeah, the ponies are just really not working out, but gosh, if they aren't the best ponies, you know, they're really doing their best. It's like, no, this one pony, you have to wrestle with him for 30 minutes every day to get yeah. him into his harness, and he tries to kill you every yeah. day. Don't tell me he's a good pony. He's not a good <laughs> pony. You should have shot him years ago or days ago. Like... <laughs> That's so bad. I, I'm with you. First of all, let's <laughs> let's get this out of the way. The ponies are the worst part of the book. They're terrible oh, creatures who Just betray the them at every chance. They get eaten by killer whales, for goodness sake. I mean, I think we've got to talk about the animals in general, right? And this is one of the, the biggest sort of things that struck me about the difference between doing this in 1910 and doing it in 2018, right? Is you have all these weird animals you have to keep track of, right? The yes. whole time they're sailing down in this just hunk of junk ship that they've got and they're sailing down south and there's just horses and dogs everywhere and they just hate it and they're, they're constantly getting washed off of the boat and then washed back onto <laughs> oh the boat gosh. and they're they're miserable and they don't know how much to feed them and they're constantly not doing what they're supposed to do. The dogs are always trying to kill each other. The dogs are always <laughs> killing penguins. And yes. Just really <laughs> and the horses never work right. No. Even the they... good horses are just constantly screwing up. Well, and that's, I mean, yeah, that, so, and it is funny with hindsight, like, I guess that's where I would say, you know, this almost connects to our, you know, our previous little talk about, you know, why do you do this stuff? Because as someone, you know, living a hundred years in, you know, the future, who's like, you know, like I remember seeing, uh, what is it, Iron Will, do you remember Iron Will, the film about the Iditarod race? Um, I don't think I saw that one, though. No. Yeah, it's not good. Um, I don't recommend <laughs> it. <laughs> um, Very well. But it's, you know, but it's about dog sledding. Um and so, f- as someone who like you know has no knowledge of exploration or anything, I was at, I remember I had to I had to talk myself into the fact that like I was applying anachronistic knowledge to their yeah. knowledge sometimes because I couldn't believe that they were doing ponies. I mean, I was like, you guys have sled dogs, and then of course, what's what's the bummer though is that like a Munson had only dogs, right? So like, yeah. they, it, like I think and I think that's what haunts. And actually, at one point, Cherry says like. What really haunts our entire journey and what makes me think that it was, you know, this kind of failure is that someone else did it at the exact same time we did, lost no lives, and seemed to have a relatively easy time of it. Um, yeah. Which, you know, but I'll, I'll just say, though, is like, you know, but at the same time, like, no one had tried to go that far south in the world before. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> um so yeah, and I don't know, I mean, as far as the knowledge for knowledge sake thing, I think the other part that I liked a lot was he almost makes a better argument for why, like, books and music are humanizing things that we should foster in our young so that they are human in moments they won't expect, because he talks about, like, you know, deprive yourself of civilization for a couple months, and all of a sudden, like, a song with your friends becomes the only way to feel alive. Yeah. Well, again and again, when they get, like, snowed in, on the, particularly in the winter journey when their tent has blown away and they're just hunkered down in their sleeping bags and waiting, just waiting to, to die, die. Uh, <laughs> which is definitely one of the most evocative I thought scenes. Um, yes. Uh, again, not a scene; it's a real thing. But they're just they just start singing to each other because they don't know what the heck else to do. Um, and you know, and the, the piano they have in the hut, right? Back when things feel bad, but of course aren't nearly as bad as they're going to get. Mm-hmm. The, the little piano and the, the few records they have on the gramophone are just so important to them. Um, it's, I think it's definitely, as you say, important about how, how music and, and books and such can really help a person feel human in just horrible, horrible situations. I think yeah. that's definitely true. Yeah, and whether, you know, whether students should go undergrad in debt for that, and that, that is a hard question. Yeah, um, I don't know. I think you and I are 
I don't know. We're weird examples of people who got liberal arts degrees, but I mean, I don't know. I don't think. Yeah, I think it's a hard question. I, I don't. I don't think. I mean, I. Yeah, I. I love my education, but I don't know, man. Um, it'd be it, it'd be hard to go. At the, I think at this point in life, it'd be hard to go back and say, yeah, I should definitely have gotten a creative writing degree. If I, like, and I was on scholarship, but like, you know, if I had to pay back everything, I don't know that I, I would have gotten the same degree. Well, it's uh, tough, you know, it's definitely a tough question. Like, Erin, um, my wife, has an MA in art history and an MFA in photography. And right. she is currently a museum professional, like, and so she's working in her field, and it's very, it's, she's doing a lot better than, than many of her cohort was. Not all of them, of course, but many of them, you know, don't have jobs in their field, or if they do, they're very much more part-time, or they're not at institutions as good. But, you know, she's constantly saying, I just kind of wish I had gotten an MBA instead, you know, and I don't know if that's I, right. I, I but... know, I know. <laughs> well, and that's why, I mean, I don't know, I, I, I take this back, so, okay, I won't go there completely, but there is this, I mean, it's why I think, um, okay, and this won't be a politics podcast just everyone listen. and also if you if there's anyone actually listening you should know that bill and i are very weird politically i think i think <laughs> it's safe right like we're not yeah we're not easily plottable as far as you know it really is i feel like for both of us um definitely for myself i i won't speak for you too much but like it's issue to issue like as far as this like binary left right nonsense it you'd have a hard time tracking me unless you're asking me about an issue that i want to vote on um or maybe a politician. Any, but and the point being is, like, I was going to say, um, I think it's why, I mean, I do think there is a crisis point with education right now in the sense of, if not a crisis in actually students getting education, a crisis in how we as a culture think about it um, and how yeah, we are definitely. approaching it because we have marketized it, right? We put it in the marketplace, which, good or bad, has had this effect of it only takes one school saying, hey, we'll offer you a hotel-like existence, but you're going to pay 50 grand a year for then all the other schools, including state schools, to kind of do the same, which then turns the focus of education, right? And so I think it's why, like, whether it was realistic or not, you have this, like, Bernie Sanders movement saying, let's just make it free. We'll, we'll take it out of the markets, which I, again, I don't know how that happens, but you know what I mean? Like, I feel like there is this crisis around knowledge right now, um, and it feels related to this book because this book is, like, I think embedded within their reason for going to the South Pole is, you know, glory for England. There's this nationalistic idea of reclaiming or furthering, you know, the nation's status, which I feel like is also of this moment. Yeah. Well, that's always what you see, right? You know, we need to improve American education because we're not competitive in math with with other countries. And I'm always kind of torn about that, right? Because, like... On the one hand, yes, we need to have better education. I don't think anyone actually disagrees with that. And it's a decent enough metric to say, look, it can be done better, so why don't we, you know, I, I get that. But on the other right. hand, like, that's not exactly why I want my future, you know, I don't have any kids, but it's not just like, I want them to be better at math than some other kid in some other <laughs> yeah, country. Like, no, that's yeah. not the goal, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to beat the hell out of those Norwegians. <laughs> Yeah, like that's it's not because I, I just want to feel smug in my knowledge that we're better than Norway. Like that's not I want right. them to be good at math because I think it's good to be good at math. <laughs> yes, <laughs> no, yeah, no. That's I think that's what I mean. I think yeah. So it's it's this competitiveness that's like both at the level of the market and at the level of nationalism, which just is. I mean, again, the nationalism thing is a difference. So we don't, we don't have to get on that. But I do want to I do want to bring up nationalism because so I and one of my little cute notes here that you and I are sort of glancing at every now and then. 
I, I basically, so one of my ideas about, like, so Cherry says we're doing this for science and we're doing this, you know, for, for, for whatever, but, so this is taking place, you know, and, like, the dying grasp of the, you know, British Empire, right? Like, they launch from New Zealand, um, which is still at the time super British. Right. Um, and I, I don't, I, in some ways, I feel like this idea of knowledge for knowledge's sake and this sort of annexation of a blank canvas continent I don't want to be like too cultural studies here, but like that seems to me to have like this this dying imperial impulse, right? That the annexation without any specific justification is is sort of how an empire is built, right? No, I, I think absolutely. I I, uh, I I don't I don't I think I don't think that's trying to read too much at all. I think that's exactly what's part of what's going on. I think it's the only thing going on. But I think right. yeah, they want to do this because it is good for Englishmen to do ridiculous things and it will be good for us to get there first not because it like who cares who gets there first right it's like for pure science it doesn't matter right no you're just going to both take the same you, we might even take different metrics if you somebody else went first that might even be helpful no but we're going to go first because by god englishmen can do things that other people can't you know and that's absolutely this imperialist push you know it, it's it's exactly the same thing I, well I and, exactly and right. yeah and the nationalist kind of competition of we're going to beat norway which again is hysterical to me because like these got no, you know, Amundsen comes from people who invented skis. Do you know what I mean? Like they invented how to ski on frozen surfaces. I don't like don't race them on a frozen surface <laughs> if your men are all gonna die. You know I mean like that's not a good idea. <laughs> what? I guess the, sort of the amateurism of the whole operation is is like particularly at the even at the very beginning they're on this boat and they don't even know how to keep the horses on the boat right and the yeah. boat doesn't really know what's going some of it is because it was, wasn't very thoroughly explored and I, don't, I shouldn't impute like scientific knowledge that we've had since to them right? right so they don't really understand like nutrition in the same way that we do now but again and again they're doing stuff and it just doesn't work and it's just because they they didn't bother to it feels like sometimes they just didn't bother to double check some of this stuff first you know? I do, yeah no there's definitely this weird timeline on things like we like the, I feel like they're under a rush to get out of New Zealand or, I mean it must be because of the weather I guess maybe is they're thinking like we have a window to like break through the ice yeah. to get to the actual land um, which by the way it's just that's how I don't know the worst part of the journey for me besides the the winter journey excuse me is actually I think the sailing the sailing yeah. sounds awful it sounds like the worst sort of i don't know it's like everything you imagine being bad about being on a boat happens to them basically um but yeah but i agree with you i feel like they 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 ship out from new zealand and then they're they're constantly surprised of like oh we who knew the dogs would maybe wash off the top of this unenclosed space in the middle of (laughs) the worst seas in the world it's like well i like you guys have been here before one of you had to know something (laughs) Yeah, it, it, like I like how they talked about one of the earlier, one of the. So in his little, he's got his introduction that he writes, which is simultaneously very useful and just still more <laughs> so, confusing. So confusing, <laughs> because so he, he has this thought that, hey, a lot of these other books about either this journey or other journeys have failed to really contextualize it, and they've just assumed everyone knows what's going on. So right. I'm going to give you some context, and I'm like, word, I I could use some context because I don't know who any of these people are, <laughs> and then he just assumes you know who everyone is and just makes oblique references to stuff that everyone knows. And you're like, well, this is 60 pages of just me feeling like I'm not in on the joke. <laughs> yes, totally. No, but anyway, he, yeah. he, he mentions these other previous trips when they couldn't get their lamps to light and stuff like that because they just didn't know how the gas lamp isn't the right word, but like their heating sources to work. Right. And so they're they're dying in this they they don't they didn't actually end up dying, but they were 
much closer to dying in this blizzard than they should have been just because they didn't know how their equipment worked. And there wasn't anything, I think, quite as egregious as that on, on this, this, this trip, but there's moments when you're like, how did this happen? How did you not how you know how your motor sledges were going to respond to the cold? Oh, like, the motor sledges. God, I forgot about that. That was so They've got depressing. these highfalutin, like, proto-tanks, and they don't understand how they're going to respond to cold. And I'm like, why did you bring these things? <laughs> well, and like, even, I, I think that's also where, like, the whole, we're doing this for science. Like you said, it that, if that's what they're really doing it for, like, that, I think that, that that's a bit exposed or maybe undermined whenever Scott says, you know, like, okay, we're doing this for science, but hey, you guys, your motor broke down, so you've been man-hauling for twice as long as everyone else, but, like, you're going to keep going because we've got to make it to the pole, right? Like, we've got to get there. Yeah. So even though, like, I made you use the motors because I wanted to test them for future expeditions, that's, like, the science practical part. Yeah. But you also might die because on top of that, we're going to race the Norwegians to the literal South Pole. And that's where, and like, I, I, they just did too much. <laughs> and I think that's one of the things Cherry says towards the end of the book is that, you know, Amundsen, one of the reasons Amundsen or Amundsen managed to make it is because that was all he was doing. But right. because we were trying to do all of these things at the same time, and also because nobody would ever say no, like, people were always yes. volunteering for things. He has that, that whole point about how, you know, we would say, hey, someone should do this, and all of these, you know, bright, strapping young British lads stood up and did the thing, <laughs> which meant that no one ever got a break. Right. And, you know... It was just always everyone on all the time, which meant that they, you know, a lot of them died. And yeah, some of that organization, some of that, you know, understanding more about the limits of the human condition, I guess, would have been helpful. But I guess, I guess the counter argument is they didn't. No one had actually pressed up against these limits except for simultaneously Amundsen on the other side of the continent. And so this is how we found out some about what people could withstand in the cold is because of stupid stuff like this. I guess that's no. The, he the he definitely makes a good argument. I I I think by the end of the book he has convinced me that like maybe there were some moments that were like like if things had gone differently they wouldn't have died and maybe the difference would have been a decision. But overall, I think he convinces me that like they that they really couldn't have known the most obvious stuff like the like yeah. the, the fact that a Munson or gosh Amundsen um, I don't know Big A uh, you know the fact that Rolled. he, he what do we call him Rolled <laughs> Rolled the fact that Rolled that's his name right yeah I think so hold up I'm pretty yeah. sure I'm gonna double check and make sure that's his name <laughs> okay but the, the whole the whole thing at one point that Terry talks about is you know we knew that this was a pass to the South Pole because of Shackleton and I think Scott's previous expeditions. Yeah. Amundsen chose a route that no one knew anything about, and it could have yeah. been just as plausible that he ran into a mountain face that he couldn't scale, and then all of this becomes, you know, a different narrative, right? So, like, yeah. and, and, and I feel like that's going back to the whole, like, the outcome doesn't necessarily dictate how we can totally talk about the decision-making. No, that's right. One of the reasons we all, you know, one of the reasons Old Rold managed to get there first was because he took a big old guess, and he had he wasn't a, he wasn't just a shot in the dark, but nobody knew what that part of the of the continent looked like, and he Isn't just that, said, "I'm pretty just, sure there's land here." Let's, like, pull let's off. go for I, it. I, I know this is the 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 easiest like gloss on this kind of book, but like, isn't it insane that they didn't know? Like the continent at all? You know, like like they didn't like they didn't have like I don't know like they're like they're just they're literally going into this blank wilderness that's so arid and cold they can't grow fruit. I don't know, it's insane that they did this. <laughs> yeah. But. Well, Stuff like this makes me feel more like, you know, the Martian could happen. Do you know what I mean? Like Yes, I totally like, agree. 
Yeah, I totally agree. It's a lot easier for me to imagine somebody growing potatoes and his own feces on Mars when you think about people who did stuff like this and most of them survived. Like, in some ways, the crazy thing isn't that five of them die. It's oh. that 12 or whatever of them don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about the winter journey. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much we had to add to that in some ways, but I, I just because for me, like, so Francis Spufford, uh, take a drink. Um, <laughs> he, um, in his article for Lit Hub um, that you and I kind of used to come through this book and his other book about, uh, you know, other explorations. Anyway, he, he basically says the winter journey itself is the, like, it's the center of the narrative and it's the emotional center of the whole book. And I that I think that's accurate. Like I, I, I when I when I finally got to that point of the book, it felt like um, it felt climactic in a certain sense. But it also I, I actually couldn't believe that this wasn't the journey where Bowers and Wilson died. At one point, yeah. I, because the like you said, the intro was so confusing actually because I didn't know anything about this stuff. I so the intro actually. I doubted my knowledge at one point of like, wait, did Bowers die on this one or on the next one? Because I thought it was the next one, but there's just no way that they're not going to lose someone because yeah. they're they're walking in winter through the coldest temperatures at this point ever recorded. Well, and people always people a couple times talk about how uh, Cherry was the only one to survive the winter journey. Well, that's not exactly. He was the only one of the three of them who survived to get back to, to England. Yes. But between that, I'm, I'm with you. A couple times I was like, is this going to be it? Like, And I, I do think, I want to talk about this for a second, because this is related. The title of the book is The Worst Journey in the World. And right. it's about the entire expedition from start mm -hmm. to finish. But he specifically describes the worst journey in the world as actually the winter journey, not as the one that killed all the people. I know. Um, and it's partly because that's the one he was on, I'm sure. But I, I, I feel a little bit... It, uh, interested about that, right? Like, you would think that the worst journey was the one where everyone died, but the one he consistently calls the worst journey in the world is the one he was on where everyone actually made it back out. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and this goes so... Uh, um, in this article he talks about, you know, that, Spuffer, that Spuffer writes, he talks about that uh, there's been this whole cycle of how Scott's journey, uh, this particular journey, is viewed within the English public, right? That at first, like... Everyone thinks Scott's a hero, and that actually Scott is such a hero that um, Cherry casting any doubt on his leadership skills is a bit of a scandal. Which you know, if, I'm, if you're like me, I mean, I thought this book praised Scott pretty highly overall. Yeah. Um, and then it goes through this whole cycle of like by 1970, some historian has debunked Scott, like he's proven yeah. every, you know, like he's the worst. Um, and I think I think actually what you're saying it to me that's that's almost the best argument for. Uh, kind of the negative view of Scott's decision making, right? Is that three men under much worse conditions, and like it's and and Trey says, you know, it's luck. We survived because of luck. Like we deserve to die. It's basically we. It's you know. We found our tent again, which we just shouldn't have been able to do. Yeah. Exactly. So, but but I I get that, but it, it does seem to me that like that Bill Wilson is the better leader. That he makes the more careful decisions. And that he is willing to backtrack or or do you know like that? I don't know. It just seemed like I would have followed him before I would have followed Scott if I had known both of them based on this book. I would agree. I, and the thing I think, you know, um, Cherry never has anything but just the nicest things to say about Scott, right? Like he he admits that a couple times they thought maybe he wasn't quite as strong as he was, but he he is in fact, and that he could be sort of. Um, you know, easily offended and so on. But, like, he always right. says basically, not, you know, 
his was a subtle character full of lights and shades and you know he was sensitive <laughs> yeah. but he was just always the strongest and he was but I agree with you like I came out of this and I'm like I, I would much rather follow Bill Wilson into, into something horrible because I feel like I, I can understand what Wilson is thinking like whereas Scott I'm never clear from this why Scott is doing what he does why does he take a fifth man onto the pole I'm not so clear on that I well, and, and another part that I, I think that kind of started to wear thin was that Cherry, he sets up, he sets it up so that you have reasons to trust Scott, right? He, because at one point, very early on, he talks about they have to use five men in a four-man tent, like very early on in their stay in, in a, you know, and in, in, on their little like, you know, first camp, right? And he's, yeah. he, he says, oh, I think this might be why Scott thought about having five people at the end, or at the end of the book, he says, ah, he took five people because he felt so bad leaving someone. But I mean, again, I have the advantage of you know re- you know retrospection but i just I, I i for me it was like you're gonna kill everyone by taking five people like you if you'd left seaman evans right who yeah. uh who apparently like they thought hey he's big he'll be great which is actually the opposite of the truth i yeah. they would have made it maybe right they were 11 miles away from food which is just so heartbreaking man 11 miles and they that's what they did in a day usually that's so yeah that's so hard no it's it's just horrible and I, there's a bit um so after Cherry knows they're all dead, you know, because they haven't come back and there's no way, he's looking for them, and he thinks he sees a tent at one of the depots that they decided not to go to. Do you remember that? Yeah. Like, I just, I had just this, he doesn't talk about it very much. He'd just get, like, a half a paragraph from his diary at the time. But I thought about what that would feel like if that had actually been what had happened. And because yep. for some, you know, however many minutes, that must have been what he thought had happened. Yeah, he says, I had a fair panic as we came up to the depot. I did not see that one body of the ponies had gone ahead of the others and camped, but ahead of the traveling ponies was the depot looking very black, and I thought that there was a tent. It would be too terrible to find that, though one knew that we had done all that we could. If we had done something different, we could have saved them. Oh, my God. And as it turns out, that's not exactly what happened, although they might, you know, if the dog team had done what they were sort of maybe ordered to do, they might have saved them, but... Yeah, the dog team stuff at the end. So I think he, he goes out of his way to say that he's not at fault and that I think it's Atkinson who's at charge with that point um, the uh, doctor, yes I think so right so like he talks about like so they both like he, Atkinson had his orders or at least his thoughts in mind for wanting to save the dogs and Cherry had his thoughts in mind you know he had his orders from Atkinson to save the dogs explicitly but that he definitely makes the case clear that he could have taken the dogs to the he could have found them he, yeah. if he'd, he if he had either disobeyed the orders or had different orders, he could have 100% found them and saved them. Which doesn't even bring into the, to account that they actually, they chose to go looking for the the five men returning from the South Pole who they thought were dead instead of going to help their other team on the other shore. Yeah. <laughs> that I, And again, he, he goes through why it makes sense, but like I will say that those two moments, are they stick out as like, I, I, I think there's like social pressures and there are, you know, obviously the endurance pressures and there's other things going on in their heads that they couldn't maybe have done anything differently. And yet, I, the, the not going for the party that was probably alive, that one was the hardest. How could you do that for me, actually, of the yeah. book? Well, I had, so this book got me thinking a lot about like consequentialism versus deontology because that's how I roll. Uh, and Hey-o. I've actually been thinking about those questions a lot lately for unrelated reasons. But like, so, depending, like, turned out okay, right, on yeah. the second choice, because it turned out that the team that was maybe in trouble was actually more or less fine and got got to the camp and they didn't need any help. 
And by f by going out after the dead people, they managed to find their bodies and figure out what had happened and recover some of the samples and such. But of course, they didn't know that at the time. And so it just really tells you a lot, like about how sort of I, I think people are sort of inherently consequentialist, even if they don't. Like I, I do not call myself a consequentialist. I think that is not the right way to evaluate moral questions. But, but it's it's what you automatically do almost. Yeah. In your default, you're like, well, it turned out okay. He's <laughs> like, well, yeah, but they still maybe made the wrong call. <laughs> like, right. right. <laughs> they had no way to know that this these guys were fine. And they almost weren't with some of the poisoning and the ptomaine poisoning and stuff they had. Like, you feel like this was the wrong. <laughs> I think this was probably still the wrong call, and probably in a world where everyone makes the right decisions, we don't know what happened to Scott because his tent was completely buried, probably before anyone would have found him. Like, no, I, I, I that's hard exactly, to say. Yeah, but. <laughs> well, I, I try to agree, and that's and and and, and it's, what's funny to me though is that you know, um, Cher goes out of his way to say that like, we all agreed. We all agreed unanimously that we should go for Scott, which I just, I, I wish I, he talks about like they had these like long debates. And in a book that's already in some ways too long, I actually want, I was like, I wish I, I wish he had recorded more of that, you know, because I, I'd be curious to like, I don't know if you can ever capture that sort of instinctual choice. Because it feels like basically the choice to go for Scott, who's probably died, instead of going for their other team, you know, who's probably alive. It, it's like almost like an instinctual, semi-spiritual, maybe duty-based, whatever, right? Like it's something that's not totally within the usual rational framework, which I can respect, except that I, I, I would want to hear more of the compelling reasons to abandon live men for a dead man's legacy. Do you know what I mean? I One thing I thought about this book a lot is Cherry is, is kind of standoffish about really letting you get into the psychology of some of these people some of the times, yeah. right? Like, he's he's always trying so hard to paint everyone as the best person. And he might even be telling you, like, I'm, I'm not saying he's lying, right. but he's always talking about how everyone is always so chipper and, like, only one time on the winter journey does there even, like, a, an impatient word and there's never a harsh word, right? Like, just, like, at, at one point, somebody's like, Cherry, you got to learn how to use an ice axe. But, like, that's it. <laughs> like, that's the only... And they don't even swear. Like he says, he didn't even hear an oath, you know? He's just so committed to, to recording. And again, what may well have been true, but he, he's showing his hand again and again about how much these were just the models of perfect British adventurers, and they never lost their temper, and they were always hopeful, even as they were dying. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, but there's no way there were never arguments about, like, what to do here. Like, and he says uh, on that argument, everyone unanimously agreed except for one person who abstained, basically. So yeah, like, what, yeah, what happened right. there? Like... <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, exactly. I would have loved to hear not only the debate, but yeah, there's one person who said, "Hey, I can't make this call." I, I'm with you. We that that's like it's almost the moral, the most morally fraught decision of the entire book. And I think yeah. partly, I think partly it gets short shrift because what happened happened, and he's not going to like re-debate it. But also because it's almost like again, it's almost like a narrative problem where like the book at that point has been going on for so long. We like we've, we we know what's happened, right? We know what's already happened, and so he's he's not gonna prolong the inevitable, which I from a narrative perspective is smart actually, because um, if we'd had like a chapter about debate, it probably would have you know I probably would have skimmed, um, but I I think it is yeah it's he he definitely skims over a few of the more complicated situations I think. Well, I think that so you talked about um, the narrative. I think the pacing of this book is kind of odd. Right, because it builds at a pretty yes. steady pace all the way through the winter journey, and then it gets back, and we have like a couple chapters about, and then we wandered around and did some stuff, and then the polar journey starts up, and there's two chapters that were like, okay, we're building up to the second climax, and then we wait like 150 pages before we actually get about what 
like what Scott and Bowers and company did. And like I get that on the one hand I get that because that's actually what Cherry that's how Cherry found the information right. right like he went on and then he came back and then he went off and found Scott's body and so I get that but on the other hand it means I don't care about this other stuff for a hundred pages you know like I know yeah. all of these guys get home safe right. and I don't really care to hear about all of their sort of relatively minor troubles getting back I mean Lieutenant Evans almost dying is important I don't mean I don't care about that at all but like I spent 130 pages being like right but I want to know about what happened to Scott <laughs> I know these guys make it you told me <laughs> <laughs> that's funny I well, so that's that's a question that we've talked about me asking if we're really going to do a, a big book every time which that's the whole idea of the podcast right is to do a book that's like too big for kind of normal <laughs> normal casual consumption um well, which is a not really true because anyway, anyway, um, what should be cut out of this book? And I, I'm 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 on the fence with this one because especially you mentioned you actually mentioned one of my favorite sections, which is the Lieutenant Evans stuff. Um, yeah. Not favorite, not favorite throughout the whole book, but favorite within that kind of time frame of the story because um, isn't it Oates or someone who like he like stumbles across for thirty miles to Hut Point or whatever it is? Yeah, it's not and, Oates. Oates is already because Oates dies with the the power oh, party. That's right, it's, um, yeah. Uh, it starts with a C because it's not yeah. Lashley. Lashley's the one who stays behind um, with Lieutenant Evans. What's his and name? I can't remember his name either. Um, I can't find it quickly. But Crean, right? C R E A N. Crean. Yes. Crean. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I and so and also because I liked it a little bit too because we got a lot from Lashley's diary for I think that journey as well. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, I'm torn because I, I again. Not to invoke him, not to over invoke him, but Spufford, this is his point, right? That um, we have to go through what Cherry went through for the story to to kind of to have a different valence than maybe it had, because again, the pub, and this and this is actually the problem that you and I have as distant readers in America is that the public had already consumed Scott's last journals, right? That yeah. they had actually those had been right. published yeah. for a while, and they were big bestsellers, I think, um, from what I read. And so, but I don't know. So I feel like that plate lids into it. But I, I agree. I think if I was going to cut anything in this book, I would cut some of the science stuff. But that's just because I don't care about it as much. Um, and I would definitely, I would get to what happened to them fifty pages earlier. Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree. I agree with sort of Spufford's point that um, we should go through it. We hated, and certainly why he wrote it that way at the time. I just I felt like it was what's most interesting to me at that point, right, is actually, is not the specific trials that they went through. I mean, I want to hear about Lieutenant Evans. That was very important. Yeah. But I don't really care so much about some of the other sort of, and then we had a hard time getting over the ice in more or less the same ways we have. What I'm interested in is like the psychological <laughs> profiles of these yeah. people. Like what I'm interested in is what are they thinking? What do they feel like? What, what is it like when they realize that Scott has died? And right. instead, he's just like, oh, and at this point, we figured, mm, shoot, Scott's dead. Like, <laughs> no, we got to like, no, talk come about on, that. Come on, on that for a minute. <laughs> no, you're right. Because like, actually, there's two moments that stood out to me. And the first one is, you're right. They, so they, they realize that, okay, it's so late in the season. Scott is almost, and by the way, Cherry's two best friends are yeah. almost certainly dead. Um, and the reaction, like they talk about being, you know, verklempt a little bit, but they totally just continue being practical and I, I was with you like because I, I, I kept supplying psychology right like I was like oh well they're still in the Antarctic they still have scientific duties like I you know it, it's sort of like soldiers going to war so often the letdown happens on the plane ride back right like you don't yeah. you don't really let go of your mindset until the mission is completed or whatever and so like I that made sense to me except that I'm with you like cherry live this he doesn't have to guess 
about... I mean, he might have to guess a little bit, because, you know, who's fully self-aware, but, like, he, he can tell us why they didn't dwell on Scott's demise, or maybe they did, and yeah. he yeah, and, and he avoids it for reasons that I don't... I have no idea why he would avoid it. And if that's just, like, the British upper lip, you know what I mean? Like, that's silly, because I'm with you, like... This is, you know, I don't know. This is emotionally interesting. And so I guess I, I was expecting, like, I, I liked when I sort of looked at the, I kind of, like, peeked back at the table of contents at one point, partly just to kind of, I was kind of running up on the deadline, to be honest with you here. This was, like, last <laughs> night. And I was, <laughs> was kind of like, okay, like, just so I can understand, what is, how does the rest of this laid out? Right. Um, and I was like, oh, he splits up the polar journey. That's really smart. And I, so I, I, I get it from the narrative thrust, and, and again, Particularly as as we mentioned, the fact that the public had, public had already read these, so maybe this was yeah. the part that he needed to, to to lay down for posterity's sake. But I really was. I was like, I want to know what they thought, like, and what what does Cherry think, who survived this journey, which in some ways should have been objectively harder, yeah, totally. than the one that killed all of his friends. Like, why why does you know he, he <laughs> there's one bit on the winter journey when he they don't fall into a crevasse that would have been it right like yeah. it's this it's this big one and the, the moon like just emerges from behind a cloud just in time to show that here's this bottomless pit and right. they're like 20 feet away from it and he says something about how he couldn't believe that God would spare us here just to die later right like and it and it feels like that's this he's he don't think he ever says it says it again but it, it felt like that was kind of something Cherry must have been thinking right like why did Bowers and Wilson survive this horrible winter journey when they then died on the polar journey a few months later and no, i want to yeah. get into this psychology and he just doesn't and <laughs> well you're right i mean this brings us back to the full circle of bowers kind of being the protagonist because the great tragedy is not just that they die but that they die after they've done so much right so yeah. they, you know, like they're so close to the camp which is really bad but they're they've already like e- even the south the South Pole journey itself, right? They've overcome incredible odds. They've over, like they've you know missed crevasses and they like and I um, one of the things Spufford articles article mentions is that recent you know temperature monitoring has confirmed that like it was an abnormally cold blizzardy time for yeah. their return. Like abnormally like historically abnormal maybe you know and so like they overcome all of this and then they die. They don't die in a shipwreck on the way there. They don't die, you know, on the journey that should have killed them. They die within 11 miles of their friends. Um, yeah. But the other thing I wanted to say is, like, the other point that was really weird to me about the whole, like, reacting to things unemotionally. Do you think anyone on this journey gives a crap about Seaman Evans? <laughs> <laughs> no, totally. <laughs> Like, that poor guy, it's like, they're just waiting for him to die. Like, well, he's still around if he was honorable. Like, the, the subtext to me was, if he was honorable, he would have already killed himself. It's it's hard not to read a contrast between the way Cherry talks about Evans, who, and, and, and the way they talk about Oates. You know, Oates eventually just walks off into the night, right? right. And, and, and commits suicide. Yep. Uh, it appears to have been on purpose. I guess we don't know for sure, but it, it, I can't imagine why else he was getting out of the tent at that yeah. time. And versus Evans who just sort of slowly expires being carried the last few few you know trips and then and dies of, of uh, in the tent you're right like does anyone care about this guy because the other four get like eulogized at length and they said just like yep Seaman <laughs> Evans he was he was too big man turned out he was it's just he was a too big. real man yeah well that's a actually guy. when you're talking about like digging into psychology or whatever that's I I think that's part of it too is that and this is where I think Cherry's defensiveness, you know, works against him because 
my guess is that they did want him to just die, and partly because he was big. He was adding a, yeah. a, a great burden to this already desperate trip, right? And so who wouldn't be like, okay, you're going to die. Just die quickly. You know what I mean? Like who wouldn't have that thought? But we don't get to dive into that at all, right? We, we have to just kind of sort yeah. of impute that or infer that ourselves. Um, but it does bring me to one of my favorite things, one of my favorite little passages that I wanted to read to you because it, it's, again – uh, Team Bowers. This is like Bowers at his best. Um, let me find it real quick. Sorry. Okay. Practically any man who undertakes big polar journeys, which, you know, all the rage at this moment, <laughs> must face the possibility of having to commit suicide to save his companions. And the difficulty of this must not be overrated, for it is in some ways more desirable to die than to live if things are bad enough. We got to that stage on the winter journey. I remember discussing this question with Bowers, who had a scheme of doing himself in with a pickaxe if necessity arose. Though how he could have accomplished it, I don't know. Or, as he said, there might be a crevasse, or, and at any rate, there was the medical case. Okay, that's all. I feel like that's Bowers in a nutshell, that his first option is a pickaxe to the head. Yeah. <laughs> and his second option is to fall through a crevasse or to have enough morphine to go to sleep and die there. Like, why is morphine not your first choice, Bowers? <laughs> <laughs> like, if this is yeah. going to be a question we're talking about, why is a pickaxe through the head the thought that, like, oh, I'll just do myself in with a pickaxe? Oh, my God. Yeah, oh, my God, Hit myself with an axe. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, well, but that, I thought that was really interesting because I feel like that, that did give some framing to, like, why they might have been anti semen Evans, but like they just didn't, he didn't talk about it. He just didn't make it explicit. Well, and one thing I noticed, so Oates, um, so of the five guys who go on the polar journey, all of them die, but uh, two of them die bef before the other three, right? Seaman Evans right. dies of some sort of sickness early on, uh, on the way back, and then Oates has horrible frostbite in his feet and is just uh, having a hard time and becoming a burden, and then one night um, stands up in the middle of a blizzard, says to everyone, I'm just going outside, I may be some time, and yeah. then wanders off into the blizzard to die. And clearly on, I mean, who knows, but it, there's really on no purpose. other reason to go outside. Um, and everyone, you know, they, they talk about how heroic he was and how he was a, he was a true soldier to the end, and that's, I, I want to be clear, I think that's all very true. That's an incredibly selfless and heroic thing. I don't want to talk crap about, about yeah. Oates. But what's kind of ignored is he says this, and the other two guys apparently just say, cool, man. Like, <laughs> nobody says, no, don't. Like, nobody... <laughs> well, I know, like, and, they, and they all kind of, like, they talk about, like, oh, he should be really honored. He did the heroic, brave thing. And, like, and I, I get that, but I I don't know, Bill. I mean, yeah, if you and I were in a tent and you were like, yeah, I'll be some time, I, I think I couldn't help but say, don't. Look, we're all going to die. Let's just die together in this tent. You know what I mean? I just wanted to, like, what happens next? Like, there's no way he just says that and then just vanishes into the mist, right? Like, right. he can't hardly walk. Did, did Something happened. Did, were, they, were they just silent? Did they say, I understand? Did right. they try to talk him out of it? Like, and of course, it's not Cherry's fault he doesn't say because he doesn't know because he yeah, wasn't yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, That's true. But, that's, you know, that's the question I have. Like, I can write that scene up to that point, but I don't know what happens next. And it, depending on it, it really, really changes how you feel about these guys depending on how they react to that kind of thing, right? Because they're, they're... That's true. I mean, not really. I mean, it's an incredibly impossible circumstance. It doesn't change my opinion. They were, they were all dealing with just impossible situations. But, like, I can no, write that I, scene in very different ways. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I, I, I say that's true because I, I do think you're right about it. It changes... 
it's not exactly how you view them because they've gone through so much. You're right, it's impossible. But it, it does it does change the tenor of a few things. Of of one, of like what's their purpose in being here, right? That they're like they're like he's heroically dying. Except they like they don't really move much after that, right? Like he sort yeah, of they dies. They make it a few more, but I don't think they make more than like twenty miles after that. Yeah, so it's, it's the, the sacrifice is not actually that helpful. And again, you return to this problem of like he's sacrificing to help save them ostensibly, but of course he's also sacrificing so that they could make it to the South Pole and make it back with a bunch of rocks, right? Like, why yeah. not get rid of the rocks and put him on the sleds? You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like that, so there's these human questions that. I don't know, like, in some ways it's really fascinating that they're so committed to this marginally scientifically helpful, you know, journey, and yet at the same time, like, I, part of me thought, like, okay, if the if this book is partly interesting because I'm projecting myself into it, I think I'm realizing that, like, I wouldn't have gone <laughs> then either. Like, I, I haven't done anything like that in my life now, you know what I mean? Like, I haven't sought out, like, military work, or I didn't want to ever be an astronaut, and I think it's because some of those questions, they seem unanswerable, and I'm not sure I would answer them correctly. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I might die earlier because I'd be like, no, don't go outside. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I just, that, that scene really stuck out for me, not, not just because it is, of course, a you know, famous and heroic. That's, you know, that's where Spufford gets the title of his book that he wrote on right. this. The title of the book is I May Be Sometime. Right. Um, but what struck out, again, was what's missing from that scene, and I... I guess that's my, my biggest, I don't want to call it a complaint because I think it's a fascinating book, is that I just wanted to know more about what these people were thinking. Mm. And again, in that instance, there's no way Cherry could have yeah. known. But in some of the others, I'm like, I. that probably stems from the fact that I was reading it like a novel where it is not in fact a novel. It is in <laughs> fact a recollection of an actual thing that happened. But <laughs> Well, but don't you think, I mean, so again, not to like harp on this, but like, so like this book is all about bringing you to the precipice of an experience that like you could never have, right? It's saying, yeah. hey, look down this cliff that you didn't know existed and try to fathom the depths that other men have gone to, right? And so I do think it's incumbent on on Cherry to plumb the depths as far as he can go. And I, I think you're right. I think in a couple moments, either because of his own defensiveness, which again, well earned. I mean he's trying to he's trying to he's trying to both give a factual account and he's trying to say, look, these were all good men who died in what might look like a stupid way, but they they weren't. They were all the tops of their field. You know what I mean? Like, so I have to get, make sure you realize that like they weren't just idiots throwing around the snow. And yet, I think there's there's these two moments, and for me, it's Seaman Evans almost stuck out stuck out more for me because I just couldn't believe that he like so casually plopped over, and they like they didn't yeah. seem to give a crap that like one again yeah. he was there for three years did no one like him was he like unpopular <laughs> <laughs> I wonder I don't know this and I, I should be careful about is there like a class distinction between Seaman Evans and the other like I wondered almost yes like, he's a seaman right that's not an officer right like I don't know my naval British ranks but he's not an officer right correct and the other four are right so I, I actually don't I could never figure out if Bowers was um, you're right Bowers might not be an officer and I think that's and I, that's actually the uh, the one that sticks out because you compared them earlier because I think that everyone loves Bowers and so he gets the certain treatment that that a, a beloved person gets and I, that's why I felt bad for Evans because my my thought my literal thought was like no one likes this guy and no one cares yeah. that he died <laughs> uh, especially he died in such a horrible way right like you said he died yeah. of like 
food poisoning or whatever it was. Not food poisoning. I'm an idiot, but whatever. It's not it really. He, di- he has like a concussion. They're not really sure. He has a concussion, and all of his limbs are getting frostbitten off, and so he dies of some kind of, you know, horrible shuddering death. It's either because he basically freezes to death, or he he has a like a stroke or something. Like it's horrible. It's not clear right. exactly what happened, but it's right. it's not a fun way to go. Like they don't even talk about if they like marked his grave or anything. Like they don't actually say if they no, buried him or not. I that's assume they I know. did, but <laughs> yeah, that's insane. Hey, so I had a couple of specific funny things I wanted to point out. Uh, so there's one bit right before they get on the winter journey uh, when he's talking about sort of some of the silly things they get up to, just the silly games they're playing and whatnot. And yeah. he opens this paragraph with, Inside the hut are orgies. Um, <laughs> which I think serves to show how much language changes over time because I'm pretty sure he's not trying to drop quite the bomb on us that it sounds right. like based on that phrase um it i don't know it really took me out of it because he's right before he's just talking about you know here's what we're going to bring with us on this winter journey you know however many pounds of antarctic biscuit and pemmican and then he's like oh by the way inside the hut are orgies and uh you know i'm just pretty sure he just (laughs) means like a really good time and not well it's so we we kind of discussed this a little bit before at one point um but i i think that so what I love about this that you said earlier as well was that the book is not as anachronistic or, or that's not quite the right word from our point of view. Like it's not like reading a 17th century poem where the language is so out of con or it's so alien that you're expecting words to mean something different because mostly this book is just like the English we currently use. And then all of a sudden we are hearing about orgies, which the other thing I like about this is that I, I think of these kind of books as being like very boy books, you know, like, like, like almost like Call of the Wild, right? This is like a Jack Lane yeah. story in real life. And um, my guess is that, you know, in some ways I'm transported back to some of that mental state, which I think, you know, happens when I also hear the word orgies used because it's a funny word. It's just a funny word. Like who's here for the orgy? Yeah, exactly. Another thing, um, Absolutely, Cherry Garrard managed to live out a couple of my very specific nightmares over the course of this journey, and I just wanted to sort of dwell on that. He, Please. Uh, he, he wears glasses most of the time. I guess he's pretty blind without his spectacles. <laughs> and when they're on this winter journey in particular, he can't wear them because the glasses fog up. Um, and so he goes in this whole massive Antarctic journey, right? Sledging through the snow and in these right. tremendously cold temperatures and trying not to fall into bottomless pits without his glasses on. Um, <laughs> And he just talks again and again about this. He says, um, at one point, yeah, the temperatures were lowish, negative 37 degrees. It was impossible for me to wear spectacles, and this was a tremendous difficulty to me and handicapped to the party. Bill would find a crevasse and point it out. Birdie would cross, and then time after time, and trying to step over or climb over on the sledge, I put my feet right into the middle of the cracks. <laughs> Which, okay, let, let, so there's there's a couple of things here, right? So one... You talked about at some point that this is like an amateur's exploration, right? That these guys are like classic English sportsmen in the sense that they have some expertise as scientists or maybe as sailors, but they're not, you know, they're like they're not the hardiest mountain men of all time, right? They're not professional mountain climbers, whatever that means. Um, and this is like when I kept, I kept reading about his terrible, you know, vision and wondering why he was even chosen for the winter journey. Like, why wouldn't they have sent Seaman Evans as opposed to him? Um, the other thing, which I'm going to forget now that I'm talking about it. Um, yeah, I guess that's all I have. I'll take it back. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But I, I, I mean, it really resonated with me because of course I've worn glasses my, uh, not my entire life, but since I was like eight and I'm pretty blind. 
And living up here in Minneapolis, I have a lot of experience with glasses in the cold. And when you wear like a face mask, right, your breath um, is kind of kicked up throughout your whole face, which is what keeps it warm. But it also means that your breath blows straight onto the back of your glasses and they fog up and you can't see a thing. <laughs> and so as I'm reading this book, I'm walking, I mean, not at the same time, but like in the course of reading this book, I've also been walking home from work sometimes when it was right. you know, pretty cold and I'll have my face mask on and I'll have to take my glasses off because otherwise I can't see. Which means on more than one occasion, I've definitely nodded cordially at lampposts and stuff like that because I thought they were people. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but this just really resonated with me. And, that is a great joke. <laughs> you know, like, well, I really have, though. I've been like, yes, hello, hello, I haven't said anything, but, you know, that sort of pedestrian nod you do. And, oh, no, that's that's not a person. That's a big electric box. Um, very good. Very good indeed. Uh, well, so, but, so, he, so I have another thing I want to say, which is that, how like okay how surprised were you when you heard like the first time that they like they like someone fell through a crevasse like 28 times in an hour or whatever it was I know eight. yeah I so I, I, I so I, I I looked up on YouTube like I was I remember like you know watching Everest videos and other things like that these so these guys that they're just so like how I think how it mechanically works right is that usually the um the crevasse is maybe small enough that the sled can bridge it right so the sled is on the sled's ends are on the solid ground and they walk across like there's some way in which they're anchored because guys are just falling and hanging with like like yards and yards of death below them right is that that's what's actually happening every time they're falling across correct yeah i think that's right and it happens <laughs> all the time <laughs> it's so well they, but the first time he mentions it it's so casual and it's like but all you'd have to do is have the rope break and you die yeah when there's the whole bit early on uh, when they've got the dog team and the dogs fall into the crevasse and are just suspended for like an hour and a oh, half. Oh, yeah, and they have to, yeah. Oh, my gosh, that's right. And they have to all, they're not strong enough to just wrench it up. So they have to like get the dogs, the lead dog has to get purchased to get the rest of the dogs up. I just, that was, that and when they get, when he gets stranded on the ice floe and like they have the ponies and the killer whales are circling them. Those were, as much as everything else was in some ways scarier with the actual winter journey being such an endurance test. Those moments of, like, if you slip and you die, that stuff was, that's more terrifying to me as far as, like, well, okay, I might freeze to death, but, like, you know, I, you know, I prepared for that. I can't prepare for, like, putting my foot wrong and having a whale eat me. Yeah. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. The, the, the final sort of specific nightmare of the cherry goes through, and this is just a throwaway line, which I think the casualness of it is part of what's... Um, Amazing. Imagine, imagine this. Towards the end of the winter journey, we get this paragraph. Um, there was no wind, at any rate no more than light airs. Our breath crackled as it froze. There was no unnecessary conversation. I don't know why our tongues never got frozen, but all my teeth, the nerves of which had been killed, split to pieces. He never mentions this again. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I think that's why this book is... I think in the introduction that we both have, she talks about it being an, an epic of sorts, right? That it's like it's sort of a classic Odyssean epic in some ways. And I think it is because, I mean, epics have a certain scope that's necessary, which this has. It has three years, right? But what makes it an epic as well is that like like no one event is so singularly horrifying as as it should be because it proceeds or is succeeded by things that are just as insane right so yeah. like he can casually talk about crevasses he can casually talk about his teeth essentially splitting apart with the cold um he can casually talk about like how are we going to commit suicide whatever it is right um because the next scene is going to be just as harrowing yeah and 
the, the physical like changes that they went through. I went and I, I saw some pictures of these guys. I, I looked them up the other day, and they're always just they just look horrible. <laughs> like, yeah. All these pictures of them at the pole, and but even in relative safety, like they're just around their table in the hut, as safe as they're ever going to be at any point on this trip. And they're all frostbitten, and their their skin is just this sort of horrible shade because it's right. been burnt by both sun and and frost. And I don't know it. It's little details like, and then my teeth split open, but I never talk about this again. Oh, that's, really yeah. just how I couldn't survive out there for a second. <laughs> Do you think, I mean, I'd be curious. I know that there are, I mean, I've read into thin air actually, which is sort of like, you know, the, it's the famous Everest story from yeah. the 90s or whatever. Um, but I was trying to think actually about, I do feel like uh, Francis Bufford, you know, take a drink, um, has, he, he talks when he, in his little article about that this book is just so quintessentially English, and that's sort of like an obvious tautology because everyone's English, so of course it's very English. But I think what he often means is, like, it is this, like, this culture of understatement, right? That, like, yeah. oh, and then my teeth broke out. Well, next we found ourselves, and I, I and not that that's, like, you know, I've known Americans to write like that as well, but I do think that this... I don't know. Like I, I don't. I basically what I'm getting at is I wonder if this would have been as good if an American from 1905 wrote this. You know, an American yeah. from 1911. Like I'm not sure it would have had the same uh, restraint actually, as far as because that's actually what makes it from like a narrative craft mentality. I think sometimes like if you go for a really dramatic scene, actually underwriting it usually gives it the right tone, right? If you if you try and have the language as high pitched as the drama. There's something melodramatic about that. And this book is never melodramatic. Yeah, absolutely not. So I, I had one final thing I wanted to point out. And this this is another thing that's been casually thrown in and I thought really recontextualized the whole book. D- did you catch that the reason that everybody can work so hard all the time and sometimes makes weird decisions is because they're all constantly high on cocaine? <laughs> <laughs> I, I did catch that. And I, I thought I thought he really undersold how much that might have helped them. <laughs> Like repeated, like, a couple, like only two or three times, we talk about yeah, and the cocaine and zinc tablets we were taking are excellent. And I said, really? <laughs> okay. Well, and especially because he talks about it as like a like a pain relief, right? That we're taking cocaine because it's helping the pain in some ways. But like like you're saying, I he also talks about the industry of every single person on the team, and he never connects the two. It's like it's it's, a, it's as if they're all you know. It's as if you were to talk about coffee and not talk about. It giving you a caffeine boost, right? He like he totally ignores the benefits of being, you know, on an upper for three years. Yeah, you know, who, who knows if it's the same kind of, you know, I, I don't know. That's true. It could be, yeah. It, you know how it's working, but just the casual mention of like, oh yeah, and the cocaine tablets were great. Like, <laughs> definitely, yeah, yeah. This is a hundred years ago now. Yeah, definitely couldn't was... say things like that. Uh... No, you definitely <laughs> couldn't. I love that. I love so, that. you know, apparently come down to the South Pole for sweet Coke and orgies. That's apparently the, the takeaway <laughs> I think I have from this book. <laughs> yes, sweet Coke orgies and value your teeth, kids. Your teeth, you get them once, you know. Well, you know what's just crazy to me? Cause it's funny that you picked up on this. Um, because I actually, so before you met me, surprisingly, when I was in fifth grade, I, I knocked my four front teeth backwards, right? Um, oh, man, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I actually didn't know if you knew this. So my my two front teeth are dead because they were actually my adult teeth. And the other two on the side of them, they were kids' teeth, so they just pulled them out. But I had like a three-hour surgery, um, and then I got two root canals. And the craziest part is so I had one root canal, and it was like I was super doped up, and it kind of hurt, but I got through it. And then I had the second root canal. Okay, and at this point, like I know what a root canal is and what it's supposed to feel like. 
and they had like a newer guy doctor doing it, a new guy dentist, and it was usually this like it was these two sisters who ran the practice, and it wasn't either of them. It was this new guy they hired. That's important because he didn't believe me when I told him he hadn't given me enough pain medication to numb my mouth as he was drilling into my tooth. And so I felt the entire second root canal, um, like just squirming in pain. But the weird thing is, like I, so I actually had my teeth knocked out of my head, and I've never had that dream where your teeth fall out. Really? Yeah, everyone else I know has had it, but I, I've actually experienced that, where I had my front teeth bent backwards and my two side teeth on either side, they were dangling and actually fell out, but I've never had the dream. I wonder if there's some connection to that. I've had I've yeah. had the dream a couple times, but not the way some people do. Right. But and I haven't I've had some dental work done, but not the same level. I wonder I wonder if there's a connection there. Like it's no longer I, something yeah. your body is so scared of because it's been through it. That's it's been through pure it. speculation. But the the best part of the surgery so it was like a three hour emergency surgery at the dental office, and um, the, I remember two things. I remember one that there was so much blood pooling in the back of my mouth that I wouldn't swallow, and they told me to swallow, and they finally suctioned it out. Other thing is that they were giving me drugs. I don't know what drugs, but it was one of those dental offices where they had the TV hanging above your chair, and they had Five Goes West on, and I remember, like, <laughs> I remember, I remember at one point, the screen started to swirl <laughs> and to expand beyond its, you know, it's the TV, and I, and I thought to myself, I think that I'm high. I'm 11 years old, and I'm high right now. Um... I can't believe you never heard that. I can't believe I never told you that story. I mean, I guess I don't know about never, but I certainly didn't didn't ring any bells. So yeah. Yikes. So okay. Yeah, well, so that's thing. yeah. So anyway, that was off topic, but I I love that you caught that because I, I think I did. I actually forgot that his teeth split, and everyone's. I mean, everyone has stuff like that. Everyone people lose fingers. I think when they come home, right? It's never quite clear to me. They talk about having really badly bitten fingers, but I but I, I don't know if anybody actually has an amputation. Um, but I mean. It's also not clear that they didn't. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, I couldn't tell either. I, I was also confused as, as to whether... I mean, I think they didn't have amputations on the journey, but it, I'd be really surprised if someone didn't lose a few toes when they got back to England, right? Cause, I believe that, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so at one point, we, we thought about talking about some of the, the books that you know you had connected to while reading this. Did you want to talk about that? or? Yeah, so I've got two, two in particular that jumped out at me. Um, one I had thought of anyway, but then, um, you know, Ursula K. Le Guin died not very long ago, and so I was thinking about the two or three books of hers that I've read, um, which is uh, not nearly enough, but that's where we are. Right. And there's a long bit in The Left Hand of Darkness, which I think is her first big novel. I mean, not the first one she wrote, but regardless, it won the Hugo and the Nebula, and is certainly one of the big, you know, Ursula K. Le Guin books. Um, there's a whole bit where they're traveling through and over this glacier and in this just really horrible cold weather and they don't have enough food and they're having to ration there. And it just really reminded me, I was reminded of that as I was reading through the worst journey in the world because the, the conditions that these two characters are going through in, in the left hand of darkness, um, it's because of the ice and the not enough food that they have some of their most interesting conversations. And when they first start to right. really understand each other, but I actually picked out a, a short, uh, passage cause it's, it's uh, from the left hand of darkness. Cause I think you could slot it into, Worst journey without a lot of uh, a lot of seams. Um, on a usual day, we would have pulled for eleven or twelve hours and made between twelve and eighteen miles. It does not seem a very good rate, but then conditions were a bit adverse. The crust of the snow was seldom right for both skis and sledge runners. When it was light and new, the sledge ran through it rather than over it. 
When it was partly hardened, the sledge would stick, but we on skis would not, which meant that we were perpetually being pulled up backward with a jolt. And when it was hard, it was often heaped up in long wind waves, sestrugi, that in some places ran up to four feet high. We had to haul the sledge up and over, each knife-edged or fantastically corniced top, then slide her down, and up over the next one, for they never seemed to run parallel to our course. I had imagined the Gobrin Ice Plateau to be all one sheet like a frozen pond, but there were hundreds of miles of it that were rather like an abruptly frozen, storm-raised sea. That's, so, that's crazy. That's exactly, know, right? that's, so even the mileage is actually consistent with worship in the world, right? That That's what they talk about doing miles-wise. Yeah, Man, on, that's... On, on, on relatively good conditions, they can do 12 to 18 miles. It's not exactly, I think it's a little bit more generous than they are in the book, but it's not that far. Man, that's, that's gotta be, she had to have, if not read this, she had to be familiar with the, uh, with the genre or read about it. Cause I, um, that's actually, she brings up one of my favorite visuals from the, from the worst journey in the world, which is, I didn't know what this was when they first mentioned it. Even he explains it, but I still couldn't quite picture it that the, the Strastrugi, you know, that these, these frozen sort of snow waves, um, they're not quite drifts, but they're not, you know, they're, they're iced into place. Yeah. Um, I love that as like a, as a texturing of the landscape. I just love the ways that he always manages to point out, you know, how dynamic the Antarctic actually is, as opposed to this, it's not like, like she says, actually, it's not this still pond of uniform color and shape. It's this really dynamic thing. It's just dynamic in a way that we're not used to. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I don't know, I, I couldn't help but think of that connection, but also, you know, you know again, that, that book is so, The Left Hand of Darkness is so good as like a psychological evaluation of its characters as, as our yes. protagonist comes to understand this planet where you know, people experience gender just so differently than we do on earth and um i think again i don't know just this antarctic conditions horrible polar conditions really forcing people to understand each other is just a large part of the thrust of the worst journey of the world and it's also what makes the back half of left hand of darkness so good so i don't know she did a good job apparently it didn't, wasn't just effective when you read it but when you when you go back and read a book about actual stuff it, it uh she appears to have gotten it right, like that. <laughs> no, that was yeah, that was a that was a great paragraph pool because I I didn't I didn't remember it being that specific, but that sounded that sounded like the worst journey in the world. That sounded exactly like it. <laughs> On that same note, I uh, we already talked about Lovecraft a bit, but uh, you're having a podcast with me, so you're gonna have to keep doing that occasionally. <laughs> it's gotta come up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the Mountains of Madness, which is uh, Lovecraft's probably most famous novella, he wrote a couple. Um, but it's probably the most famous one. It's certainly one of the most influential ones uh, in terms of, I think we were talking about this the other day, but like The Thing and, and other sort of works like that are yeah, clearly I mean, derived X from... X-Files has an episode that's that's derived from it. Yeah, but I, I just wanted to... Uh, Lovecraft is often accused of being, like in contemporary writing, of being very realistic, which is kind of a funny thing to say about a guy who wrote about like trapezoidal aliens and you know enormous <laughs> squid monsters and dreamscapes yeah. but he centers a lot of his best later short stories in a pretty realistic grounding you know the call of cthulhu was set up around theoretically or you know, you know notes taken from this this professor's quarters and like police reports and all these sort of things right and at the mountains of madness is about an antarctic expedition in about 1930 i think it was written in 1931 or so which is about 10 years after worst journey was published um, and he spends way too much time in At the Mountains of Madness, for my taste, trying to set up the actual scientific things these guys are pretending to do. Um, and I, I think it's kind of a problem with the book in some ways, but it also makes it feel so much like Worst Journey. So I got another paragraph here, which is useful for two reasons. Um, let's talk about it when I'm done. So this is from At the Mountains of Madness. He says, We planned to cover as great an area as one Antarctic season, or longer, if absolutely necessary, would permit operating mostly in the mountain ranges and on the plateau south of Ross Sea, 
regions explored in varying degree by Shackleton, Amundsen, Scott, and Bird. Oh. With frequent changes of camp made by aeroplane and involving distances great enough to be of geological significance, we expected to unearth a quite unprecedented amount of material, especially in the Precambrian strata of which so narrow a range of Antarctic specimens had previously been secured. We wished also to obtain as great a possible a variety of the upper fossiliferous rocks, since the primal life history of this bleak realm of ice and death is of the highest importance to our knowledge of the Earth's past. So that's, that's pretty early on in At the Mountains of Madness, but again, you could just slot that directly in towards Journey, and you would yeah, never notice. He definitely uh, did. I thought particularly the connections between, and I had forgotten this until I looked back and prepped for this podcast, but you know, At the Mountains of Madness, uh, our protagonist, his portion of the team, and, and just like in the real thing, they had several different teams sort of focusing on different scientific research, right? Um, and that's the one team finds the frozen aliens, and the other team finds the old city and such. Um like they're, they're trying to find these old rocks and old fossils, of course. And what does the polar party bring back as they're dying, but old fossils and old rocks, right? Like, no, I know. These, well, it's, I mean, these weird connections. Well, it's, it's, it is funny. Even you reading the, uh, the passage, I mean, it's, I mean, so, cause he wrote mountains of madness only like, I think you said like 10 years after the worst journey in the world. So it's a, yes. after, after it's published, after the book is published, it's yes, 20, years. 20 years after the expedition, 10 years after. Yeah. The book is published. But it is, it is funny that he, I mean, I mean, he, he, you know, Lovecraft, I mean, he's not trying to be esoteric with his reference to these explorers, right? Like, he's referencing, yeah. he's referencing Neil Armstrong, you know? And I think, I think that's what yeah. I kept coming back to with some of this book was that these were the original astronauts, right? These were the guys that we, everyone still knew. Like, I think at one point, um, Cherry actually calls Scott and Shackleton and this crew, he calls them, like, the last Magellans, right? The last guys who are actually mapping the world um which is totally accurate but i i also think it's it's a little sad right that i mean the fact that scott amundsen and shackleton made this journey like i remember shackleton's name because that documentary and because i feel like he has lived on in the atmosphere more than other people have for some reason um but it is it's it's almost like if it's almost like if we colonized mars and neil armstrong became this kind of footnote, you know? Yeah. Well, the moon, yeah, that's 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 an R. <laughs> that, that's, it's actually rotating us. We went to Mars. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's that kind of weird way in which history will erase anyone, which is sort of cool, but also sort of just surprising, I think. You know, I think I think Cherry would be surprised that I didn't know who, you know, R.F. Scott was or whatever. I think we do need to mention that... Scott's full name is Robert Falcon Scott, which yeah, is pretty cool. I don't, I don't know why I didn't say Falcon just now. You're right. I really that was a, that was a mistake. But yeah, you know, I couldn't help but think he assumes everyone knows who these guys are. Granted, it was only ten years earlier, but you know, we don't have I think famous explorers anymore in the same way. No. We have some, you know, some old no. astronauts who are still alive, and some of the like ocean pioneers, I guess, from the you know the deep sea stuff from like the eighties. Yeah, that's true. But, I, you know, the closest thing we have now would be like celebrity scientists, right? And and those tend to be people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, who, whatever else he does, is very much not like you know R.F. Scott, <laughs> right? Good no. Ways, but <laughs> no, yeah. Well, but no, I mean, so I, that's a good question though. Like, I remember so the Mars rover. There was like a momentary burst of enthusiasm, right, for that whole project. Yeah. But in in my sense, and I guess maybe this is. Maybe we're just coming into the, like the after valley of having all these space movies and whatever, because to me it actually feels like people just don't care. Like I think recently, the grandson of a one of the famous ocean explorers, he just went farther down than anyone has ever gone before. I can't remember his name. 
Um, but he just did it. Like, he just went to the, the lowest point in the ocean that anyone's gone yet. And I, I just don't... I mean, maybe the ocean is not that interesting to other people, but I, just, I feel like no one cares. I don't think it, I don't think it would be a big deal in the same... Like, unless it's Mars, no one cares about where we go in this Earth. <laughs> Do you know yeah. what I mean? No, I know exactly what you mean. Um, I don't know. So, you know, stuff changes. I don't know. But it, it is... I don't know if this is an equivalent group of people like that, like you say, because I think people just don't really care as much about the ocean stuff or about most of the space stuff that's happening. I know when they landed one of the Mars rovers, there was a Twitter picture of some dude with a like a faux hawk that people fell in love with briefly, but I think that's yes. not the that, same thing. <laughs> maybe more about, that's true, that was maybe more about the the mohawk than it was about the, the Mars. Yeah, yeah, I don't know, I it's, it's so. yeah. But I, it's, it's, I think, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if, I don't know, we'll see what happens with exploration because the other problem this comes back full circle to our knowledge for knowledge sake thing is like what's the point of going to mars you know is there really anything we're going to get out of going to mars people talk about like people on the fringe of science talk about you know basically science fiction stuff as far as colonies and you know terrascaping or whatever but like we should maybe do that to our own planet first right if, if the concern is making a planet livable like we should probably keep focusing on the planet we already have and I'm not sure I buy into those arguments, but I do think the knowledge for knowledge sake thing that can I think that's really relevant to NASA, right? That that's NASA's ideas that we're going to explore, basically for the sake of exploring. But I don't know. They haven't. We haven't got anywhere in a long time. You know. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. Like, you know, Elon Musk is always talking about Mars stuff, and of course he's a he's a whole thing. But yeah, yeah, you know, he keeps coming up in conversation, and so I think about it, and I I don't know, like. You're right. Theoretically, one could mine stuff in the asteroid belt, but it's just very far away. You know, like it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's not super easy to get there, right? Like, uh, and so I don't know at what point there's a direct sort of like economic benefit, and it seems to be hard to get people excited about the scientific benefits. Just of, right, which you know would then be correlated, of course, with some economic benefit later, but. A lot of the reason you go to Mars is because it would be cool to go to Mars. and I, That's what I think. If we're going to go to Mars, let's stop talking about all the gains we're going to have. Let's just put it in purely romantic terms. I mean, it doesn't have to be just romantic. I think secondary reasons are important, like I said earlier. But let's if we're going to go to Mars, it's because who wouldn't want to put a man on, on Mars, right? Like, yeah. It's a different planet. So that's where I stand. Um, so as, I don't know, as far as maybe a, a quick kind of wrap-up... Um, just I we didn't actually ever do this. I think we, you and I both really loved this book, but I I, mean, I was just I was curious to maybe hear your your kind of your book club reaction as far as like where this ranked on your your year of reading. Right. Um. I, I've been reading such different things lately. It's kind of hard to like. I don't know how to compare this with like Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation. Like I don't really know <laughs> how to make that comparison, one way or the other. Um, That's fair. It's definitely. I I really enjoyed it. Um. You know, there's definitely some slower passages here or there, but not. Not as many as you'd expect for a 567-page book written in 1920, right? Like, agreed, agreed. <laughs> I, I've read shorter books from that period where I was like, right, all of this could go, and I didn't yeah. feel that way. Um, I don't know, and I, it was just such a foreign thing to think about. Uh, you know, I really haven't read anything about polar exploration uh, ever before, and so I, I don't know. I really, I'm really glad we picked this. I, I, uh, I don't know if this book is as famous now as some of the other stuff we might potentially go through on this podcast, but I actually right. think it was a good, a good starting point because I never would have read this just like on the shelf. I never would have just seen it and been like, yeah, this will be my project right now. And I'm no, very glad same. I did. No, I, I had the same reaction. I, I also thought a lot about the ways in which like, 
I think when I was younger, I would have wanted to read this book because, you know, our patron saint, Francis Spufford, recommended it, which is why I wanted to read it this time, too. But I would have read it, I would have wanted to read it for essentially, I think, like, shallow and or prestigious reasons, right? It's a big book yeah. that a famous author likes, and I want to, like, I'm a person who reads big books. Like, that was kind of a, you know, like a statement to myself, almost. Yeah. Um, but I think well, the best part about being older is that, like... Um, I, I think I'm 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 better at not you know kind of BSing myself when I when I actually am enjoying or not enjoying something, and so what I was surprised by is I started this book and I worried my first worry was like especially with the introduction which was really interesting like you said but also so confusing I was like yeah. I was talking about like there are parts of it which I love when he talks about their other kind of parallel party the Campbell party on the other coast who they kind of have their own experience that is not in the book proper. I loved that in the intro, but I also was like, what is like, what is this going to be? Like, I don't understand what I'm supposed to be getting out of this. And so I was kind of worried that I was going to just force my way through it because I can read fast and I was going to, you know, just read as quickly as possible. But I, I really loved it. I loved it because I don't read a lot of nonfiction or I'm, try, I'm trying to read more. But I, I thought it was just a fascinating weirdly a fascinating like insight into the specific journey, of course, but also... This, the culture at the time, this like pre-World War One sort of cohesive culture that these guys represent, right? That they're all from the same nation, they have some of the same, like, I don't know, there was just a way in which you could feel the nationalism, and not just the bad parts of nationalism, right? But you could feel the cohesiveness of this group. Um, and I, I don't know, it was, I, I think there's, again, this dark underbelly that you and I talked about earlier with the national competition and the imperialistic whatever, but... I, I found it really, I don't know, I found it really a fun read for being such a big book about tragic events. Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't know. I, uh, I'm excited to see what else we come up with as we do this podcast, but this was a good place to start, I think. I agree. I agree. Well, anything else to add? Um, not a whole lot else to say, other than apparently killer whales are a lot scarier than I was <laughs> when I was 10 years old. Um. <laughs> yeah, screw you, Free Willy. You lied to me. <laughs> God, I know. I, I don't think I'll ever... Like, I literally won't ever forget just my own mental image, which he describes the whales just ramming the bottom of the ice flow. Just, yeah. I just, and, like, and, then one, and the one time where they could have done it and they didn't for some reason, and, right, and the party survived, I... That's, I don't know, man. There's so many times they should have died. They should have died so many more times than they actually did. That's the real takeaway. Yeah, I, I would agree. <laughs> All right, Bill. Well, we'll figure out uh, the next book, and we'll do this again in a couple months. Yeah, I'm excited. So like we said earlier, we're, we're shooting for sort of a quarterly schedule, and we're not going to commit to a particular date. Um, but, you know, sometime in the spring is our hope, so late April or maybe sometime in May. Um, and we'll definitely let everybody know uh, if you're listening and you've got a recommendation for a big read book go ahead and let one of us know we don't promise to take it into consideration and given that it's a quarterly podcast if enough people do that we will quickly come up with a lifetime supply of books but still you might have an <laughs> idea we haven't otherwise thought of <laughs> that's very true and yep thanks for anyone listening uh, send us send us your recommendations that's a great idea alright All right, Bill well, well I'll talk to you soon yeah talk to you next time definitely excited
Final thanks to Keenan LeBlanc and Lily Jarvis for letting us use that song. You can find either of them under their own names on SoundCloud, Keenan LeBlanc, Lily Jarvis. That song was called Water Song. It was also used at the beginning. I highly recommend them to my best friends here in Syracuse. Great musicians. Thanks again, guys.